welcome back to the third place. We, it's been a little bit of a break from the uh, mainline episodes after I did a little break with the Resident Evil 4 remake uh, episode of Sterling uh, a few days ago. But I'm here back on the main episodes uh, of the show, and uh, this, I feel like this is going to be a nice juicy one. And talking about uh, the modern Fallout games, Fallout 4 and 76, and Bethesda and all that stuff. But I am here, joined by a special little diva. Uh, I am here to welcome Samantha. How are you doing tonight, doll? I am... I'm doing great. Really, I've been so excited. I believe so heavily in the third place mission. <laughs> I was just talking about this with you, but I I have been, like, you know, sort of passively watching your show because I'm not, certainly not the biggest gamer that you've ever <laughs> But um, I've been, yeah, such a fan for so long. We've had so many random little back and forth talking about charlie xcx and <laughs> these games and everything under the sun in chichi chat uh, <laughs> during my like very glittering time there and so um I, I, yeah i'm so excited to be here and I, yeah i i'm yeah uh thank you for your kind words you know i uh yeah you're you're you've been a constant presence of like the online life of my last honestly year at least because i mean i remember we were saying this because we were talking like almost for an hour before we started uh about how i remember when you were first appearing in zach's twitter spaces and you know you were having these back and forths with him that like i you know i sat my ass down and listened to you two uh talk and then you know, seeing you get on, you know, to do the Mulholland Drive and Sky Ferreira episode was a was such a personal. It's like, oh wow, like I like seeing like the new character like being brought into the show, and it's one of my favorite episodes of season three. And then, as you said, your glittering time in the ISP Discord. You know, you decided to graduate and uh, experience the real world, which is a beautiful little uh, message I think that everyone should take part in. Um, but I'm super happy that you're here. Uh, we got two Sams in one episode. What what could oh, happen? <laughs> but I I'm glad that you're on because you made your presence known about Fallout very early on. Like when I started the show, I remember how you would post in the gaming channel of the Chi Chi Chat about Fallout, and it made me. You definitely sparked a curiosity with me. I was like, you know you were one of the few people who was proudly proclaiming the quality of fallout four and 76. And I think these games are worthy of discussion because they're so they're unique. Uh, I mean, fallout itself is a very unique franchise and all that stuff, but we'll, we'll get to that in due time. But first I want to ask you, cause you know, it's the tradition on the show with every guest is uh, what is Samantha's gaming history? Where does it begin? Um, okay. I've been preparing for this question. <laughs> I feel like I feel like that Stan Twitter video of Beyonce where she's like, oh, I wasn't expecting that question. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I, my gaming history is really intrinsically tied um, to my history as a, as a doll, as, <laughs> uh, as having that queen in me. Um, as 
the legendary T.S. Kukituki says, but um, <laughs> I, as a child, I think I said this at, at least at some point during my appearance on Zach's show, but I knew I was trans very, very young and I was like five and my parents were very supportive actually, but they obviously, because they aren't crazy, weren't going to let me transition that young. So um, although I was allowed to engage in a lot of like my sort of faggy interests, I was also a boy i i would like to say that i was never a boy i was <laughs> sort of a febophilic like androgen child uh-huh. for until i until high school basically and um gaming for me was this interesting thing where it was my only boy interest um yes. and it was a constant throughout my childhood. It was also one of the few interests that I could use as a bargaining chip to uh, enter. I'm not going to say enter spaces because that's a little large <laughs> college coming out in me, but <laughs> to connect with guys um, yeah, growing that, up. Yeah, that, that's totally a thing. Even for me, I remember when me and Jack did our episodes, like, you know, as even as gay men, it's like games are the one avenue that we can like penetrate the straight male um uh like collective because straight guys love their video games. Like it's it's a boy it's intrinsically somehow in our DNA a boy thing. Like Yeah. And it it's in there in me. Somewhere deep. And it um I have made no secret to you and to the world of my love <laughs> of Pokemon. Uh, yes. Uh, and similar to Fallout 4 and 76, I love the modern Pokemons more than I love the ones that were like of my childhood. Um mm-hmm. very controversially. Um the guy I'm dating who won't text me back right now uh, has Pre- criticized me for this. Pre- um, will listen to this episode and change his mind. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I, um, I, yeah, I think Pokemon was probably my first game that I finished. Like that yeah. wasn't just kind of like around. Uh, and it would, for me, it was Pokemon Pearl was the first one I owned. And then um, I have kept up with that franchise since Pearl. I mm. I don't I, I don't really buy the like third remixed ones that they always do, like Platinum or like uh, whatever Ultra the new yeah, whatever. The Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon. Yeah, I don't do that, um, but I do buy like you know one of each generation. Um, up until you know November with Violet, which by the way, Scarlet and Violet are the best ones they've ever done. Um, Another bold take by you. Oh yeah, and it's a it's a classic Samantha take, but it's <laughs> I'll bring it back up later actually because I think it does relate to how I view the games we're talking about. But um, I then sort of parlayed my thought process. I think as a child was that I I couldn't play quote unquote boy games. Um, yeah. Every time I tried, 
I would be totally lost and confused and a little scandalized. Like (laughs) ever try to like play like FPSs or like whatever, Um, you know, growing up in like the thousands, I guess that was always what was around. So Mm -hmm. I had the ubiquitous we that was in every sort of recession era, middle-class household. (laughs) Exactly. I ripped through every game on there. I mean, not like everyone, but like, all of the Nintendo um, legacy franchises and a bunch of random like ports to the Wii. Mm-hmm. And then I had a Wii U, the failed. You were one, You and me are one of the few people on this earth who can say I owned a Wii U. <laughs> yeah. And I got mine late. I got mine maybe three years out from the Switch launch because yeah. I, it had been a few years of the Wii U at that point. I, I got mine in 2015. Um, it's probably around the time I got mine because the switch was March 2017. Yeah, that's <laughs> that would be exactly the time. And I love the Wii U. Um, I don't. I know why it's a failure. It's not. <laughs> it's the like, stupidest name in history. Like it's stupid, and <laughs> it it didn't really work. And like I can understand why few bought it, but the games that were on there that was one of my first experiences realizing or I guess one of my first experiences with the connective power of gaming uh-huh. was the Wii U launch um, because the Wii like I said it was ubiquitous and I was truly a child for the era of the Wii like I was uh-huh. like five six I, I was five when it came out um, uh-huh. when like it was all of a sudden in every house in our neighborhood yep. um, and then when it really started to spread, I was six, seven. And then the Wii U was middle school and it was like a few people got it. And it was kind of this mystifying thing where mm-hmm. it was like, oh, you know, the Wii that we all have, like there's a new version of it. And you could go over to somebody's house and, and see like the better graphics and the mm-hmm. better version of Mario Kart. And um and for a while, for some people, and like me, I was that person because I had a one. Um, and so the, you were the one. I was the one. <laughs> and um, once again, it was like the social capital of like, it was mm-hmm. the way I'd get people to come over. It's like, oh, well, I have a Wii U, even though you like think I'm weird because I wear lip gloss to school. Like, <laughs> <laughs> serving, um, ser- serving cunt to high school. It's like, well, yeah, I have a, <laughs> I have a Wii U. Have you heard of Bayonetta 2? Yeah. I think that was you know fifth or sixth grade for me even but it was um (laughs) it was huge and it was um that was a big moment and then i didn't get a switch until 2020 and i and i don't feel very connectedly towards the switch although i do love like i mean the title i bought it for was obviously animal crossing yeah uh, like most people yeah which was a huge um another huge gaming touchstone for me um, it, was, it was the quarantine game. Yeah, I, well, it was a quarantine game. I had played New Leaf, of course. Mm-hmm. When I say that the Wii is ubiquitous, of course, the DS was also ubiquitous and was always a feature of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike my older sister, who's five years older, I was of the 3DS generation. I yes. only had the classic DS for like a year. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, yeah, so I would... I played Animal Crossing New Leaf and I was really gagged by it. <laughs> um, and then the same year, 
I got The Sims 3. Also, I have a habit of getting games while they're on their way out. And yeah. purchasing consoles while they're on their way out. So mm-hmm. The Sims 3 was already, it was already getting teased that The Sims 4 was going to come out. And I purchased, I got. I think I got The I got The Sims 3 and New Leaf for the same Christmas year. And then I purchased expansion packs for The Sims 3 with my like birthday money a few months later. Uh-huh. Um, and those were two revelations because I realized that um, Nintendo games weren't the only quote-unquote girl games that existed. That yeah. there were other games on other consoles, including my computer, that I could play and still not feel lost and disgusted. Yeah, <laughs> The Sims is very, you know, arguably Sims is one of the main game franchises where women are arguably a large if not the majority demographic for playing it i mean the only other one that i can think of i mean on this season is like kingdom hearts has a very large female player base um yeah and they i think they just speak to sort of the female brain and uh just having like you know, you can, you're the god of your own little world and you can just like create these like little digital puppets and uh, make them live your own little lives is always, I've always found interesting. Um, yeah. And I, um, when I tell you, like, I think Animal Crossing, when I think when I got The Sims 3 and Animal Crossing literally on the same day, Animal Crossing was a bigger presence in my life for a few months and then The mm-hmm. Sims immediately overtook it. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you The Sims is, that's how I know that contrary to what like right wing and ons might say, I'm truly <laughs> a woman, is because my skill at, at The Sims and my obsession with it is, it speaks so deeply to the, the community mind. of my soul. I think the reason why women love The Sims is because it's cruel. It's because yes, you, it's very cruel. You become a cruel god to little AI people and you do eugenics with them. And <laughs> I'm so good at it. And I love it so much. And when I get depressed, it's what I use to sedate myself. <laughs> <laughs> so true, though. Yeah. Like, you You craft your own perfect utopia out of these like little cartoon characters which a lot of people will just like use their real life friends or you know just people they know in day-to-day passings and it's like you know you just see so many like women like you know i mean there's always the, like the big joke it's like oh yeah my baby got set on fire in the sims like oh isn't that funny or i like put my roommates together and oh my sim died because it can't get out of the pool oh yeah and I used to, mind you, throughout all of this, I was never like bullied, but I was, <laughs> I was lived in Georgia and I was like a social pariah. And so I got to reconstruct my whole world where I got to live exactly how I wanted to, like they all did on Disney Channel. And like <laughs> I got to do everything I wanted and at first it was the Sims 3 and then middle school starts 
about a few weeks after I start sixth grade, Sims 4 comes out in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, miraculously, the Sims 4 is still the dominant Sims, and they like haven't announced Sims 5, and they're still putting out expansion packs, and I still be buying them. <laughs> Pull up the credit card, you know, put yeah, a three digit code, we're set, baby. They're so cheap, too. That's how they get you is that like it's so cheap, and it's like two new gameplay features, and but anyway, <laughs> I I got The Sims 4. I was obsessed with it. I played it all the time. Um, my parents, being kind of like Gen X aesthetes, were kind mm-hmm. of intrigued by my interest in The Sims and um, supported it because they felt it to be creative and they knew the franchise, like I said, yeah. being sort of Gen X aesthetes. And so they got me... Um, a DVD or not, I guess CD-ROM, um, like value pack of The Sims 1 in all of its expansion packs from the 90s and the early 2000s, um, that I downloaded onto our family computer. And that was a revelation. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also consequently, the 10th anniversary of The Sims 2, they put it up for sale on Origin, which is like EA's version of Steam yeah. for free for like oh. a day. And I got that. And so I had every, I have still have every version of The Sims and I played them all for different reasons. <laughs> or at least I did then. I really only play The Sims 4 now, but I played them all for different reasons. My favorite one is The Sims 2 Complete Collection. I think that The Sims 2 is a masterpiece and I think it's a very special game and it'll never be replicated. But mm-hmm. that was a huge moment for me um, as like an artist and as a gamer. And it was a big moment where I was over literally 20 years worth of media that was all on my laptop. I could just enact any story I wanted to. I could recreate my world. It was as stupid as it sounds, like one of the most like fertile adolescent experiences I ever had. Yeah, uh, no, I, I totally get that. Like, even for me, I remember certain people and my friend, like the friend groups that I was in, you know, Sims was even older Sims were still a very touchstone childhood game that like they played in, you know, maybe they hadn't played it in like a X amount of years sort of thing, but you know, there's always like a sort of like teenage, like reverence for this, you know, God simulator games. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, Jack is always saying on the Perfume Nationalist that um, there's a sort of artistic diet that teenagers should be put on, that they should mm-hmm. be watching Lynch and Fellini and reading Polya before they go to college and uh, mm-hmm. reading the Marquis de Sade. And I famously, like, you know, for as much as Jack and I differ in personal experience, obviously agree very much with that. But I mm-hmm. also think The Sims is crucial. I think that like you have to simulate your life over and over again when you're a teenager and you're lonely and you're isolated by suburbia. I think it's like one of the most crucial things to do. And it was, 
just doing that so many times was so important to me. And then I think after that, or concurrently with that, there was sort of my, The Sims to me was sort of my gamer puberty. And then I had, um, I discovered my favorite game of all time, uh, maybe tied with Fallout 4 for my favorite game of all time, but I would say my favorite game of all time is, have you ever heard of Starbound? I have heard of it. I have never played it. Yeah. It's like a, for the listeners at home, it's like an indie um, it's Terraria in space. Yeah. Like it's, it's pretty much the same game format as Terraria, but it is also, there's like a story element that I, I, looking back, I actually think this game was pretty smart. Um, for as much as this era of my interests, like middle school embarrasses me. Um, I actually think that like I was kind of on to something playing that so early and um, I I purchased an alpha version mm-hmm. um, I think based on a recommendation from like a magazine and um, I played it through its release and the many updates and then like later like DLC um, but it's sort of a space procedurally generated sandbox that's formatted, formatted like Terraria and it's um, mm-hmm a wild game it's weird nobody remembers it um but that was one of my favorites stardew valley i also downloaded really early also in alpha based Mm -hmm. on a recommendation somebody telling me it was similar to starbound and the sims and uh and animal crossing um so that all gets that all like is the kind of the final stage of the yeah. <laughs> the final blossoming of gamer samantha um yeah it, it's you know i remember you know having that connection you know being quote unquote being there before something like really took off and i felt i felt that in a lot of guys in my grade felt that when we were playing minecraft in like the beta and alpha stages like yeah we felt we felt so i guess you could say like ahead of the curve with like minecraft like you know there was a moment where like i think at least 20 of us like a guy bought a server like he, we all like gave him money to run a server where all of us could come together like and we would come together like before classes would start or like at the end of school we would get in the library and we would get on the server because this was like this is like when at least you know for me you know because we're i think you're 20 and i'm 27 so like this is like the period when like school districts were like oh yeah we have wi-fi and you can like you know you know we have some laptops you can like you know loan for the day or whatever and this was before they could control the Wi-Fi per se of students using it. So all of us had like, if some of us had like some like hand-me-down laptops, we would like play Minecraft there on this server. And I just remember like how exciting that was like being like, Oh yeah, there's this cool indie game that lets you do everything. And I remember like Terraria coming on the scene. And I remember even like Stardew 
kind of like emerging as like the next sort of like indie darling indie darling life simulator game kind of thing uh so and that was kind of like a a defining 2010s moment type event and there's something to be said about being like you know a teenager and being like well i've been playing this this new game you're gonna love it sort of thing yeah and minecraft i actually just realized i forgot to mention but I think it's relevant and poetic that I forgot to mention it because <laughs> y- I, I mean, you being, I mean, seven years is not that much and you were no. into Minecraft, but I don't think that anybody who is not exactly my age or maybe like a year younger or a year older can understand the utter ubiquity of Minecraft in True. my life. Yeah, and- I mean it was everywhere like you you it, it has the the fallout your life is now forfeit to this game sort of quality about it like yeah minecraft updates were i mean <laughs> i'm actually going to catalog this in my brain to use in like a work of fiction or something later <laughs> it's funny because i remember like the, when they announced that they were adding horses to Minecraft, it oh was yeah, it was huge. Right after it was right after like Sandy Hook, and <laughs> adults had just told us that a bunch of kids our age had just gotten murdered, and adults had also just told us that they were adding horses to Minecraft. And you know what we cared about? The horses. horses. <laughs> and we were right. Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing. <laughs> It's so funny, but it was, it, it was so crucial to my like social development as a child and my creative development. And it's, you've talked on this podcast before about the pattern that we all interact with Minecraft with now, where it's like once a year you go yeah. through your face for like, you yeah. just play it. Your binge, your binge of it. Yeah. This year it was, I lost my virginity and I had like a little age regression moment. <laughs> I felt disgusting, so I needed to play Minecraft 24 hours a day. I, you know, hey, I, I mean, granted, I've not had that experience, but I understand the like, I have to retreat back to my blocks. <laughs> oh, exactly. I remember because uh, I'm, I won't get there, but I, will say, <laughs> I, I lost my virginity. I started playing Minecraft all the time. I made a Minecraft world and my theory of it was that it was going to be like Bjork utopia. Like it was going to be like, I am having sex now and this is my sex utopia. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I remember building my house on the plane to my sophomore year of college. Like I was moving in and um, so this was only like a few months ago, but or not a few months ago, it was now almost six months ago, but it was like a minute ago. And so, some guy like lean, like who's about my age sitting next to me leaning over and being like oh you're playing minecraft like i love that game and me being like no this is my time okay, like this is my world you don't you don't pierce the veil um, no it's it's very serious and it's religious i'm always saying this about minecraft it's the insane ambient score and the really stark like Swedish design and just like 
it feels religious. It's at times very scary to me, or at least it was as a child, that you're just alone in this world and it's never really, there's no lore, like you don't really know why you're there or what's happening. It's it, it's a very special and unique experience that I'm like, you know, if I'm happy that I'm born at the time that I was, it's because so much of my life was mediated through Minecraft because it's such a a special work of art and I think that like it's the kind of thing where my kids or my grandkids will be jealous that I was there when it was created and that when it was like a big thing in schools oh yeah no I've I've had that moment like I have my nephews um my two oldest nephews one is like 12 and one is like eight I believe and when I tell when I told them like oh yeah I was there when Minecraft was e wasn't even it was in beta they're like they're like gobsmacked by that like it's it's it it to anyone who I would say like you don't understand Minecraft if you are above the age of like thirty like it, it's very connected to that late millennial early Zoomer life where it seems so mundane and childish on the surface level, but I feel like the power of Minecraft really opens up when you like put the time in. And if you have, <laughs> I, I don't know if this is like the apt way to describe it. It's like, if you're a veteran of being yeah. a part of it all, like if you are, if you have your goal, your bronze star with like, I've been there from the beginning when like you know the concept of like you know i was playing my personally for me i was playing minecraft before they introduced like you know it, in the final retail build in quotes before they introduced like the hunger like you have to eat in order to stay you know fully heart you know fully healed and whatnot like you know saying you were there before that concept was even a thought to so many you know younger kids like it, it adds like a a layer of mysticism to the the game and like you said like the music is so minimalist and abstract and so it reminds me of a lot of like 90s games where it's like this sort of airy almost like transitory experience where it's like all i care about is building my house. All I care about is getting underground to discover everything. Like it, it's so pure in its essence. Like yeah. you, you don't understand. I think the power of it all, if you're above a certain age or if you just don't have like the, the like autism in your brain to sort of like, just like where it just like clicks in you. Um, yeah. And I, um, there's something so emotionally powerful about Minecraft that I know like a lot of people my age and, and probably your age too, but it, it, I think there's a special kind of rage for my, my people because, uh, we were so young and associated so fondly with our early childhoods, but I know there's like a lot of 
reactionary anger towards the post Microsoft era of Minecraft. Mm-hmm. Um, the like constant updates and the new features and and truly, I will say, I will give them the credit of like when I play Minecraft now, it's a pretty unrecognizable game to what I'm. Oh playing. yeah, it's very. I guess you would say mainstream. I guess like it's more. It, there was always a vague fantasy element of Minecraft. There was also always a vague post-apocalyptic element to Minecraft. And I think that um, it's weird because the other like really enigmatic children, I'm not going to say children's, but like children-centered cultural force at the time was Adventure Time, the Cartoon mm-hmm. Network show. And yeah. it also had this weird mix of post-apocalypse and fantasy and like coming of age mm-hmm. building Vermont stuff going on. And so they share that to me in the same way that when HBO purchased adventure time and started pumping out like movies about mm-hmm. it and it, they started running with the like lore, it ruined it. Um, Microsoft started running with the sort of more enigmatic elements of Minecraft in a way that really enrages some people. But to me, unlike Adventure Time, Minecraft is such a specific work of art and like the music is still the same and the gameplay loop is still the same Mm -hmm. to such an extent that even though it's an unrecognizable game to me now, the same feeling still wells up in me every time I play it. Like it's still it it transcends commercialism. It transcends yeah everything they've tried to do to it in a really special way. Yeah, and way. and yeah. um, I'm sure that people who again who have been there for years, whether they've been off and on players where they have their like yearly you know fix of it you even though they add all these like new mechanics and new features it's like you're still going to play it very true to how you've always played it like i start for me personally it's like i boot up a new save fresh save and i just it's like muscle memory at this point where it's just like i find my like perfect spot for my house i build that up i set you know i create my own little digital you know house and then i start working underneath getting all my materials and all that and it's just it's oddly like zen like experience where no matter all the little bells and whistles and bits and bops that they can add to it it's like i will never change how i play and i think that yeah it's really unique in that facet like it's it's a game that will never die, but like, you know, the spirit of it will always be there. And it's just like you had, you, you really have to be of a certain age to understand why it will never die as a game or, as, you yeah. know, I guess you could call it a service or whatever you want to call Minecraft. You know, you know, I see like my nephews play something like Roblox and that's just like, abjectly foreign to me and I could never get into it. I don't want to understand it or, you know, Fortnite being this like monstrosity mega crossover franchise 
thingamabob, whatever you want to call that, too. I could never understand it, even though be I was there relatively early. I tried it when it was still relatively new. I could never sink my teeth into it, and I don't want to. Minecraft sits on its own pedestal, away from all that. And yeah, I mean, I it, one day I will talk about Minecraft because I feel like it has to be discussed um, and appreciated for what it is not not sort of the meme that it is online sort of so to say um but yeah. I, I i love your story the um there's a lot of crisscrossing moments you and i have so i i that's like the fun of the show is like hearing where people start and what games interest them and picking apart why they love them sort of thing um but i guess we can transition into the first part of this discussion, um, Fallout and Bethesda, Todd Howard, whatever you know name you want to associate, or whoever you want to sort of pick apart, the modern the Bethesda machine is an endlessly fascinating thing to witness and marvel in the modern day for me. They. For as long as I have been conscious enough to understand Bethesda Softworks as an entity, they have always seemed very nerdy, sort of like, you know, I guess you could say the Dungeons and Dragons type of guy game company. Somehow this game company has like persevered and pushed themselves into the mainstream. Their eccentricities are so... I guess you could say against the mainstream, like, you know, fallout three, which is when I would say Bethesda really came into the mainstream. You can argue like Morrowind elder scrolls, Morrowind or oblivion were like the sort of, uh, beginning steps into that, but it was really fallout three that like suddenly everyone you knew, was talking about Bethesda and it's it's so fascinating to me that this one game company the one man who's in charge of it all Todd Howard you know Fallout Elder Scrolls somehow pierces the mainstream to where people like for me when I was on the football team in college I had guys who were excited for Fallout 4's release which in hindsight feels so strange to say like college bros college you know foops you know quote unquote jocks you know we know primarily what games they're into it's like call of duty madden nfl fifa soccer those sort of games you know the yearly releases the sort of connect to their real world identity i guess you could say but somehow like fallout sneaks in it, it it's so strange to me and there's something i wanted to talk about you know before we get into our games it's like how does this company somehow in you know get into the sort of modern gaming landscape i guess you could say and um when i wanted to do this episode you know you were one of the few people who is like arguably a 
champion of Bethesda. You know, most people like to sort of rag on them. Most people like to poke fun at them. But you, you Samantha, are one of the Bethesda, like, you know, champions of like, no, the, you know, what they're doing is fascinating and unique. So I, I wanted to get your perspective on the Bethesda machine. To me, Bethesda is... I guess I can't speak in corporate terms because I don't like, I don't feel confident enough in my understanding of their history, like fiscally and like what they have done prior mm. to three, basically. Yeah. Um, three, I mean, um, to understand the kind of like financial and corporate machinations going into this. But to me, artistically, Bethesda is one of the most interesting forces in the gaming industry because it it's willing to look at some of the most interesting properties mm -hmm. in that space. So like Elder Scrolls being this kind of like Dungeons and Dragons y like mm -hmm. uh, you know, fantasy, open world thing, Fallout, which, you know, we'll get to this, but is it, the conceit of Fallout is the world, and the world is like, I described it earlier as if Lana Del Rey made a saw trap, like it's this <laughs> world of like 1950s glamour parlayed into Italian futurism and then destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so they take these really idiosyncratic properties and ideas and then mash them on top of kind of flavor of the month gaming trends yeah, uh, in a way that as somebody who cares a lot about art and cares a lot about media, I think I would normally feel is very cynical, mm -hmm. but to me, Bethesda succeeds because they do it very earnestly and they're self-aware enough about it that they create something that's like genuinely what they're taking is these worlds that are, that people are interested in. They say, let's make it as big as possible. Let's get as many people to talk about this world that you love so much with you. And like, let's make the biggest marketing campaign. Let's throw in a bunch of features that everybody's going to love, get some mm -hmm. interest in it. And they, nothing that they do is framed as prestige. Nothing that they do is framed as artful, but mm -hmm. they take these, sort of artful i'm not going to say prestige but like unique auteur ideas and they bring them to the mainstream in a way that i think is unique to the time like i think that only this this could have only happened in the late 2000s and in the 2010s yeah and the only reason that it continues to happen is because they had so much success doing it then and um, yeah, I I truly think that Bethesda's continuing impact comes from their willingness to 
make bets on extremely unprofitable entities and then through Apollonian will just force that to be profitable. <laughs> yeah, it, very much so. Like uh, prior to, because, you know, Elder Scrolls, it, you know, Fallout is a property that they got the rights to, but like Elder Scrolls was their franchise. Like okay. it's 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 a franchise that started in the mid nineties, um, but prior to then, like they were kind of a mishmash of like they would make like sports games. They would make you know they've they've made like a game. They've done like Terminator games. Uh, you know, I believe if I they they even made like a adaptation of Home Alone. Uh, back in the day, like prior to when I guess you could like say the modern Bethesda machine had really began, like they were kind of like every other game developer where it's just like, you know, whatever project that could fund, they could get their hands on or they wanted to make because, you know, back in the day, like properties, you know, making a game on a prop, like you know, whether it be a movie property or a sports figure, like that was more loose back in the day of early gaming. You know, they were like everyone else. They were just like, okay, like we're going to pump this out for the MS-DOS and, you know, keep making as many games as we can. It's just until Elder Scrolls really started that they kind of got the, the wheels and the machine turning. And it's... It really, I can't think of any other game company, especially nowadays, where like properties and franchises are so kind of like set. Like, I think of like The Witcher and that game studio, CD Projekt Red. It's like they made their, you know, bread and butter on The Witcher, you know, for them because they're like a Polish studio and The Witcher is a Polish entertainment franchise all that stuff or you know the call of duties or an american you know entity you know or you know japan has like you know the rpgs and you know bethesda somehow like you know they somehow get the mainstream to care about like the most just like non-mainstream thing and that's kind of like no one else can do that. Like, you know, we can compare. I'm sure we'll probably mention this again, but like the outer worlds, like, oh, hey, you have this like game studios, like trying to make their own fallout to appease the old heads, sort of say. And yet it cannot compete with the monolithic machine that is Bethesda and Fallout. You know, they cannot pierce the culture like Bethesda can, you know, and now you know, nowadays like Bethesda is so big that they're like a publisher now. Like they they own studios. They own one of the most legendary studios in gaming history. They own id who made Doom and Wolfenstein and Quake. These are like legacy uh industry defining experiences. And it's like now Bethesda owns that. And Bethesda now owns like a pretty moderately successful Japanese company, Tango Softworks. Like 
Bethesda owns this French studio called um, Arcane. And granted, Bethesda is now owned by Microsoft, but like I'm kind of excluding that in this sort of discussion. But it's like the it's like um it, it reminds me of like just the cyberpunk machine of like it it's made of like different parts that don't exactly fit together and they're obtuse when you see them because a lot of Beth, you know or you know, obtuse in the sense of like they don't make sense when it's like why is the studio got a Dungeons and Dragons esque game as one of its main franchises but then it has this like sci-fi rpg franchise that's also like their main bread and butter it's so weird you know for a company to be like these are our tent poles and yet they force the broader culture to be like you will care about this. You will care about everything that we do with these franchises. They will become your life. And if you don't, you're missing out. Like, do you want to be the one person who's missing out on Skyrim? Do you want to be that one person? Like, it, it's so... The only other properties that I can think of that have that, or companies or franchises that have this pull is something like a Call of Duty, where it's just like, every, you know, I'm not like a Call of Duty player by any means, but mm-hmm. I'm sure you experienced this. Well, you're in a women's college, but I'm sure, you know, being like a college student, you know, like all the guys are playing like Call of Duty or Fortnite or what have yeah. you. But I'm sure that when Starfield, the next Bethesda game that comes out, they're going to be buying that. Like, oh, yeah. For, for, and it won't, and, you know, they, they'll they just, like, instinctually buy it. Like, they won't have be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I like Skyrim. I like Fallout. And it's just like, you know, they it, Bethesda is now, like, that gear in the gaming mainstream behemoth that is, like, you know, it reminds, I think it's, a, like, Howl's Moving Castle with that, like, giant, like, mechanical moving town. And it's just like, yeah, Bethesda is a part of that, a very visible part of that, and I can't really think of anyone who has that pull. Like, no, yeah, Bethesda has this fantasy RPG franchise, the sci-fi and or the sci-fi post-apocalyptic fra- RPG franchise, and now they're going to be adding a sci-fi space RPG franchise to their like, you know, their uh billboard displaying who they are. And yeah, I, you know, Todd Howard, he is a, the carnival barker who will get everyone on his, on his side. It's magical. Yeah. I mean, to me, the formal precedent for what Bethesda and Todd Howard are doing is the film director, Luca Guadagnino, Mm -hmm. (laughs) actually literally just because Luca Guadagnino is I think one of the only auteurs working today who like really doesn't write um I I, he's maybe written a few features but like Bones and All did not write it was an adaption and it was adapted by somebody else Mm -hmm. um 
Suspiria, the remake, he didn't write at all, like any of his famous films he has not written. And most of them are adaptions. And again, adapted by somebody else. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's this, it's, they have an eye for style mm-hmm. and they have an eye for like the unique and the mm-hmm. eclectic in yeah. a really specific way where they're just like, oh, Suspiria is cool and everybody's forgotten about it. Let's remake it as like a Holocaust movie. Mm-hmm. And like, cause that's big right now. And we'll try our hardest at it. And most people will hate it, but enough people will love it that it gets like put in the Criterion Collection. Although Suspiria 2019 isn't in the Criterion Collection, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they do, it's, to, yeah, like Todd Howard is, he's a carnival worker. I earlier compared him to like a high school vice principal. He mm-hmm. takes what he's given and he sells it with such an extent, yeah. to such an extent that just everybody buys it. Just nobody can escape it. It becomes ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if it's the weirdest thing in the world. It is just broadcast all over the place. And I think that's what originally attracted me to Fallout was it was just this like, it was hitting on a few points I liked, but it was weird and it was dark and Yeah. And it, so it, was, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, like uh, Todd Howard is one of the greatest, you know, whether you dislike him or like him, that's besides the point. Cause you know, I'm anybody who's any gamer online will have their opinion of Todd Howard. But if there's one, like, what I was watching before we started recording, um, when they revealed Fallout 4 proper at a con- at a press conference, and there, it's like a 30-minute demonstration of the game, and you are captivated by this man's, pr- like, presentation in a way that very few people can do, where he is both, like, projecting a, le- a level of personality, like, Per, uh, personality in the sense of like he's just like you you know he's you know he's a geeky gamer sort of thing but he's also like this master magician of game design and game direction that like whatever he is saying is the gospel truth and um you know i the fact that he can cap you know granted again you could argue like well is the crowd really real people or are they like you know people that like are there to clap on command sort of thing doesn't matter but the fact that he can literally hold you in the palm of his hand and tell you about the new entry in the sci-fi shooter rpg open world survival crafting thingamabob that's a word i'm gonna be saying a lot in this in this episode um but the fact that he can like entice you when you know Fallout is known for its like very bleak and disturbing uh sci-fi fantasy worldview. The fact that he can get you on board is a skill that very few people are gifted in this world. Yeah, it, it's totally unique and I think for as much as he's hated. I and I don't quite understand the dynamics of game design enough to know like how much of a role he actually has in like creative directing or writing these games. Mm-hmm. But I do think that he is, and I was saying this 
before we started, but I have, I don't have a background in, but my mother, who I'm very close with, uh, has worked her whole career in PR and like media training. And I think that he is incredible at going on like the Today Show and talking to 50 year old women who have no idea what's going on <laughs> with this and being like, oh, this is a gritty post-apocalyptic world that used to be a retro futuristic utopia, but also it's a dystopia if you look close enough mm-hmm. and you're going to want to buy it for your son. And he does it so perfectly that you believe it and you do it. And then I th- I do think he's a real artist because at the end of the day, regardless of if he's scamming us all, when we all buy the game, it, one of the most like transcendent artistic experiences that you can have is buying mm-hmm. a Bethesda game and having everybody in your life play it. Yeah. And like having everybody in your life be around. And I wasn't, I wasn't playing Fallout 4 at launch, but I remember the Fallout 4 launch. I remember mm-hmm. being in middle school and every dude, and I have a vivid memory of my chemistry class, mm-hmm. every dude in that class talking about who they were siding, what faction they were siding with. And when the Pridwin flies in and yeah. did you think to buy Nuka-Cola at Target? Yeah. And it, it's an incredible experience. And I do think that to his credit, he is responsible for that. Mm-hmm. And that's the part of, that's the key aspect of Bethesda and of Todd Howard's work that keeps me coming back. And that makes me a champion of them is that they can broadcast some of the strangest intellectual properties to the furthest corners of America and create a financially successful product that everybody loves and everybody talks about. I mean, yeah, I I see this because I have, I have my quote unquote notes page, you know, to see like properly when fallout four came out sort of thing. But it's like fallout four made almost a billion dollars in its first day. Like grant, you know, set aside that games cost more than let's say like a movie ticket, but you have a game that almost made a billion dollars in its first day. Like, you know, with a game that is, you know, where you experience the end of society in the first 15 minutes. And that is just, you know, he, he has like a gift of the gab that few people are blessed on this earth. Like that same fallout four discussion presentation that he did. It's like, He's talking, he's literally selling you on the collector's edition of the game. Few people do that. Most of the time when they talk about that, they put it at the very end as like a little, oh yeah, here's our collector's edition, please pre-order. No, Todd Howard is telling you about your collector's edition that you should be buying and should be pre-ordering. And he's like already like putting his hands on your shoulder, be like, don't worry, we got you covered. Like, and then right after he does that, it's like, oh, yeah, we made a mobile game for you. Like, don't you want the mobile Fallout game that we spent all our, t- you know, our free time making? Do you want the Pip-Boy app on your iPhone? We've worked at people with Apple. They're great people, you know, sort of thing. Like, 
it's all, <laughs> in a weird way it feels very like trumpian in a way where it's just like the way he's able to deliver a like convincing experience like you believe his worldview you believe the bethesda mantra i guess you could say i i really can't think mean, very few game industry people do that and you know he he's not as far as i know i don't think he's like a ceo of um of Bethesda, he's just, you know, he makes the games, like, he's the director, he's been the game director of Fallout 3 and 4, and Skyrim, I think. But his image is, like, indistinguishable from these products. It's like, there's that great picture of him just smiling at the camera, you know, with his uh his beautiful locks of hair. Uh, just, you know, you in a way, it's very comforting. It's like, you know, don't worry about it. You know, our game is made for you. Like, you can make the game how you want it to be. And, you know, it's like a somehow, some way, like, his vision of a game is like, and Bethesda, as a result, it's like, we have a game made for you. And don't worry about it. Like, you know, it's, yeah, I, I, I'm always fascinated by him because... Nine times out of ten, a game director is like this sort of awkward or maybe not super personable person who can't win the masses. But Todd Howard can. Todd Howard can win you over. Yeah. And that's, to me, like, there's an auteur quality to Bethesda. Mm -hmm. It's him and his counterparts. It's just like, it transcends genre. It's the way that, like, they sell things. And I am an open-minded person enough that I'm willing to accept that as art. Like, I think that that's really, like, the fascinating quality. And I think it says it all. That if you think about the first two Fallout games, the isometric Fallout games, and then the, the mm-hmm. spin-offs that were sort of, like, a mix of isometric and, and first-person, mm-hmm. Um those are more futuristic than they are retro. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess we think of Fallout as the pinnacle of retro futurism, but those are are more sort of like dystopian America got destroyed. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Bethesda Fallout games play on this idea of like retro futurism and of the sort of 50s America gone wild getting destroyed like mm-hmm. and um they have created this very unique very marketable and recognizable aesthetic that can only be described as Fallout 3 or Fallout 4 or Fallout 76 um whereas with the earlier Fallout games under different studios it was quite frankly, something different. Mm-hmm. And I think that just says it all. It's it's They picked out a very vague quality of those early games um, when they bought out that IP and they decided, like, this is something that we own now. This is something we're going to adapt. And they turned it into something fascinating, something new, and something very marketable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... 
Yeah, but the old Fallouts, Fallout 1 and 2, which are fantastic games in their own right, like, I I, I will I will say, like, I, I am someone who loves pretty much every entry in the franchise for their own unique qualities. But Bethesda, like, picks out what can grab someone's attention. You know, at the time, you know, when they bought the rights to that franchise in the mid 2000s like there really wasn't any game you know off the top of my head that had that aesthetic and sort of i guess just presenting this world that felt so wholly unique i mean the only other game that was kind of in the same region and also came out around the same time was bioshock um bioshock had a very Art Deco, Ayn Rand uh, aesthetic, you know, not just kind of, totally Ayn Rand aesthetic dripping through it. But even then, no other game franchise has that very distinguished, very identifiable Fallout look to it. Down from, you know, the fact that the cars all look like they're from the 50s, you know, the fact that all the advertisements and decor and everything is like ripped right out from every right wingers like return post on Twitter or, uh, or just even down to the music choices being literally ripped straight from the forties and fifties, like no other game franchise dominates that vibe. And Bethesda, I think was really smart in turning. It's like, okay, how do we market this? make it a first-person shooter, you know, first-person shooter in quotes. Like, it's not like a Call of Duty, but they understood at the time. It's like, well, how do we get mainstream in? Oh, we you can play in first-person sort of thing. You know, this is an option, and that could hook people in. And then they get sucked into the world of Fallout 3 or the world of Fallout 4, you know. And I think, yeah, I mean, there, there's... It's fascinating to just like take a step back and look at what they're able to do and can very much control culture to an extent. Like, they're not like a Sony or a Microsoft or a Nintendo where it's like those companies have a platform that deliver you these games. Like, you know, they don't have that, but they have, they're so big that they, for a bit had their own press conferences that say like, here's our games for the next two years. You know, if you miss these games, like that's your fault. Like you, you know, Bethesda, you know, we have our elder scrolls online. You wouldn't want to miss that as a Skyrim fan, like sort of thing, or we have our oblivion timed exclusive event or, you know, because Bethesda owns other companies. Like, do you want to miss out on the doom, the new doom game? Or do you want to like take a a dip in the um, Ghostwire Tokyo or Hi-Fi Rush universe? Like they, they, they it feels all it almost feels like um, old school in a way. It's just like it feels like a big show, a big pre- presentation of like look at the experiences we have on offer, and if you miss it, that's your problem, and you're going to, you know, it, it, it kind of plays into like the social aspect of like gaming. Like 
the water cooler discussions you have with your friends, you know, have, you know, have you seen that moment in this game? Have you experienced that like unique event? You know, all this like uniquely gamey things. It's captivating, amazing. And like you said, uh, altruistic in its sort of existence. I, I, I think it's important to sort of real recognizes real moment with them. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's wild and it's, um, just their rise to, I, it, to me, I, I guess I don't understand the business of gaming enough to know that I'm speaking exactly correctly, but what I, what I do know is just that to me, it feels incredibly fast how quickly they rose to prominence and how quickly they were able to capitalize on sort of the The console unity era of like, we can get something out on the Xbox that will also play correctly on like a switch that also play correctly on a, Mm -hmm. pc or or whatever i know those aren't all the same generation but um you're you're totally right i mean morrowind which was 2002 or 2003 that was when like people kind of like took notice of them because like it was obviously like a pc game but they had an xbox version but then oh hey here's oblivion elder scrolls 4 oblivion Oh, hey, it's on the Xbox 360 and the PC. Like now you're you're building momentum. And then suddenly Fallout 3 happens, PC, PlayStation, Xbox. And now you're like the one of the dominant cultural figures in the industry. I mean, I remember back in the day being on gametrailers.com and how like Fallout 3 was like one of the games people were like just you know fixated on like they could not they couldn't gravitate their gaze away from what this game was at the time and it did so well despite you know the sort of trademark bethesda rough edges and the bugs and the glitches fallout 3 was still like considered like game of the year in 2008 and so it's just like the momentum, the train kept rolling and so it's like, oh, here's Elder Scrolls 5 Skyrim. Okay, now we're even bigger. Now here's Fallout 4. It's even bigger. Like, they really it's like the, you know, the door was open at the perfect time for them. They knew how to capitalize on a changing market and here we are now where Bethesda was purchased by Microsoft for like $6 billion. Like, you know that, that one of the biggest acquisitions in gaming history you know to buy this company and now like when microsoft does their yearly like e3 press conference in june it's the bethesda it's the microsoft and bethesda showcase like microsoft you know being one of the biggest tech companies in the world but now they have the you know bethesda is on almost like the equal same footing as them and I think that speaks to their power as a, a definer of the gaming landscape as we see fit. Yeah, it's um, it's amazing, and it's weird to have had my entry point 
be Fallout. Um, mm-hmm. And also my entry point to have been Fallout sort of of my own accord. Like it wasn't during a release cycle, really. I guess it was mm-hmm. the 76 release cycle, but I wasn't playing 76 until after that. So um, it, I guess my interest in it speaks to its ubiquity just that mm-hmm. like well i and i'll get into this when we get into that section of the episode but like i was looking for sort of an adult game to play to blow off some steam in a hard mm-hmm. moment in my life and i was sort of just like okay mm-hmm. well this is the one this is the one they all play like, she's the one she's yeah. the one for me yeah it's just there on Constantly. And um I it's beautiful in, <laughs> in that sense. It's really fascinating as like a corporate entity. And I think that um I think it'll be one of the ones that I, I in I, it'll be one of the corporations that we all look back on mm-hmm. as like especially in the future, I think as, as gaming is like, you know, I'm in college now and we're starting to see in, in art history as a major and we're starting to see gaming be pretty taken pretty seriously as like a medium of art. Like when I bring up games in my essays, it's always regarded pretty well mm-hmm. uh, at a pretty old school liberal arts art history department. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's already gotten to that point. Yeah. And um I've already been for the semester a few weeks from now, I'm gonna have to be writing an essay about a video game of my choice that I'm obviously gonna choose for, partially because <laughs> I can plagiarize the points yeah, of yeah. this episode. <laughs> um, I, you know. But listen, listen, they're your points. So you know, they are my points. It's self-plagiarate. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think that Bethesda increasingly is becoming like a force not only of incredible fiscal power, but also of just like cultural power. And I think that just like in a historical sense, Mm -hmm. they'll be reckoned with, even if it's in a niche academic way, but it's just, they created a face for themselves. It's too obvious and it's too, just ubiquitous to ever ignore i feel like i've said ubiquitous like 50 times since i've been on here but i mean it's a it's a fair word to use exactly it's it's what it describes the situation you know it's yeah and and my my ultimate goal because i want to cover all aspects of fallout because each era of you know the many eras of fallout like there's always some interesting aspect of it all whether it be the modern entries like in the bethesda machine or three in new vegas or one and two like there is something to be said about these these games you know fallout like we're talking about tonight but also just you know the elder scrolls and whatnot because i think fallout is a sort of cultural thermometer of where games are what could what the potential of the the medium like you can 
you can you could even go back as like Fallout Three, and I I say Fallout Three because that was my first entry in the series. Like suddenly now you have this ginormous open world that is like purely player driven experience, and like that's the future of games. Like oh, we can do what we want in this like sandbox. You know this this wholly unique idiosyncratic sandbox. Like think of the possibilities of the next 10 years of games and then fallout four, like just kind of adds upon that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, to wrap up Bethesda, you know, the Bethesda, you know, uh, machine. Um, I think the haters of Bethesda should, uh, quit their whinging. They should uh, try to appreciate what they're doing take a step back and appreciate Todd Howard as the sort of genius uh, salesman, creator, whatever you want to see him as, you know, take a step back and realize what he's doing. And yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, do you have any closing thoughts on Bethesda, Samantha? Uh, not really. I think I've said everything, especially considering (laughs) the fact that I truly have so little idea of like how it all works. <laughs> and but I yeah no I mean really I I respect it and in the way that I think that absolutely everybody who cares should mm-hmm. and um yeah I think that what they're doing is pretty incredible I totally agree and I think that can lead us straight into the first game of tonight which is Fallout 4 um. Got a doll, baby. I love her so. Nothing else like her anywhere you go. A man, she's anything but calm. A regular pint size atom bomb. Atom bomb, baby. Atom bomb. I want her in my wigwam. She's just the way I want her to be. A million times hotter than TNT. Adam bomb baby loaded with power radioactive as a TV tower a nuclear vision in her soul loves with the electronic control Adam bomb baby Adam bomb I want her in my wigwam she's just the way I want her to be a million times hotter than TNT Adam bomb baby, boy she can start One of those chain reactions in my heart A big explosion, big and loud Mushrooms me right up on a cloud Adam bomb baby, Adam bomb I want her in my wigwam She's just the way I want her to be A million times higher than TNT Uh, so Fallout 4 obviously is the fourth mainline entry in the Fallout franchise. It came out November 10th, 2015 for PS4, Xbox One, and PC. Uh, it was, as we, you know, me and Samantha went into very detailed uh, in the first half of the episode, it was a big moment uh, for culture or people who were pay- paying attention, I guess, if you want to say, you know, it had been seven years 
since the last, you know, since Fallout 3, it had been about like five years, I believe, since Fallout New Vegas. This was the new entry. This is the first game from Bethesda on, at the time, modern hardware. It was, you know, again, it, it was a big sort of like, oh my God, like here's the new Fallout. You know, it's set in a new location. There's going to be new things to do, new factions to side with all this sort of stuff and you know uh, you know todd howard uh came on stage and presented his vision for fallout for the next few years and i remember being on the football team and one of my friends his name is jordan how like he and i were anticipating this game's launch and how we preloaded the game onto our consoles to eagerly await what could you know await us in this you know mega rpg and so um i know you alluded to it a little bit samantha but you know what is your experience with fallout 4 um it's really funny um have you ever seen the movie election (laughs) uh recently because of zach's show yeah with reese witherspoon and uh Matthew Roderick e- okay imagine election um and f- put it forward like 15 years like mid 2010 or late 2010s it was exactly 2019 it was my sophomore year of high school mm-hmm. um I have at this point transitions and it's been a hot minute it's been like a year um the girls aren't really mad about it but they also <laughs> aren't really having me um, and i've kind of had my apollonian reformation of my life and nobody gets the vision mm-hmm. and i sort of i go to a really small private high school and um i have the friends that i have but they aren't they don't really get it nobody really gets it i'm sort of was socially seen as this Bjork-esque, like, weird oddity that people would cart out to parties who they thought was, like, funny. Um, And so I didn't like that one bit. Um, And I decided that I was just going to spend all my time trying to get out and go to a place where people understood the vision. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I became Tracy Flick from Election. (laughs) Came Lydia Tarr. I was an unrepentant fascist. I was just like, I am going to join the beta club. I am going to become a cheerleader. I am going to run for every student council election with my whole heart at this tiny high school in Georgia and just like give it my all. And sophomore year, the very end of sophomore year, so like May of 2019 I try out I had already been in the winter cheerleading team for the basketball team and then I try out for the football cheerleading team and I also run for a higher position in student government than I already had Mm -hmm. at this tiny school where nobody cares about either of those things and I not only don't I was in I was rejected 
from the football cheerleading team. And then a week later, I lost my student government election to somebody younger than me, which is Oops. at my high school was just not how it worked. Like that was just not the way of doing things. That was boot. It's a boot. Yeah. I was cut. I was chopped. I was like, <laughs> you're gagged. Were like, you're gagged at the function. No, weird girl, you don't get it. Like they were just like, nope, no more of you. <laughs> and I, I, I can't describe truly like a more publicly humiliated. I don't care anymore because obviously I'm like older and have friends now, but like mm-hmm. a more visceral, publicly humiliating, evil experience than being at a tiny high school that doesn't care about student government and still losing your student government election. Yeah. Um, and right after that, I was so depressed in a way that was incredibly potent because I was self-aware enough to know that it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like I was self-aware enough to understand like, oh, like this student government election was stupid and nobody cared. And that made it feel even worse than I cared so much. And so I decided I'm just going to escape into a fake reality. I'm going to go get back into gaming I hadn't really been playing anything other than like the sims at the time and so I was like you know what it's time for me to finally delve into like a boy game this summer like I'm gonna get into something kind of arty and like critically acclaimed yeah to me because I had been in seventh grade when fallout 4 came out and only a few months prior, Fallout 76 came out, and I had seen like the internet historian catalog of uh on YouTube of like all the controversies around it. And I, I had been kind of aware of Fallout. I was like, oh, this is cool. It's kind of like gritty Lana Del Rey futurism. Yeah. I was like, it's it's hitting the marks I wanted. I'm gonna spend this summer alone in my room playing this game. Like I need to recover from my Tracy Flick election loss. Um, I downloaded Fallout 4 mm-hmm. and I was gagged. I was because I had done it almost as a joke, almost as like a personal joke. Like I was like, there's no way this is going to fix the problems in my life. And it did because yeah. study of like, a, it, it was a, a real place in the world. It was truly Boston and surrounds mm-hmm. and the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And it had been restylized in this interesting way, laid to waste. And then I got to emerge out of an elevator mm-hmm. with a character who looked exactly like me and become God. <laughs> and it was the it was therapeutic. It was mm-hmm. beautiful. It was so much fun and uh-huh. it real well I think like you know the following year the pandemic hit and I just sort of stopped being in high school mm-hmm. uh and I got to do my own thing and that was helpful too but in a way Fallout 4 was like a <laughs> oh and then later 76 but we'll get to that but it was it was a really 
special experience with art for me because it Mm -hmm. came right at the point that I needed it. And for all of its silliness and for as much as I'll apologize for it, its quirks and its messiness, um, I know that it's kind of not the best game in the world, but it is my favorite game in a really good sense because it is, it has such a potent ability to make you feel so incredibly free mm. and so incredibly in control of things. And that's what I needed at that moment. And that's what I experienced. Yeah. No, I, I completely understand it. That's like a, the, the, the mystical quality of fallout is that by giving you in a sense, you know, it doesn't give you absolute control of something like the Sims does. But it gives you enough to sort of craft your own destiny. Like, it gives you enough little breadcrumbs to, like, get you going and set your own sort of destiny in this, like, digital apocalypse, I think, is very satisfying to play in. This is not exclusive just Fallout 4, but, like, you know, every Fallout game has this sort of unique thing where it's, like, you're given just sort of, like, a, like three sentence introduction to like the like uh to get the ball rolling you know fallout three oh yeah you're in the vault your dad goes uh your dad goes out into the wasteland oh you have to go find him fallout one yeah the chip that makes the water in your vault uh goes dead and you have to find a new one go into the wasteland of fire fallout four you uh, you go to the vault as soon as the bombs drop. Your wife get you know wife or husband gets shot and your baby is stolen and now you have to find them. You know, like there's enough there to propel you forward to sort of make your own destiny and that's something that few game the you know, few games really give you sort of like it's like you know letting you see fit about how to live your life in a world that is both recognizable, but obviously not because it's been laid to waste by the atomic bombs. You know, fallout is set in a universe where China and the United States eradicate each other with nuclear weapons in 2077. And all these games kind of take place from either from like 25 years after the uh the bombs drop or to like 200 years after or 200 years after the bombs drop or whatever you know and it's about you seeing fit about how to live in this nightmare so to say cuz these worlds are populated by radiated animals, you know, raiders and fiends and all these sort of Mad Max-esque gangs that patrol the world, you know, scavenging for supplies is, you know, how you can, like, literally create weapons or settlements. And then there's this sort of, over, you know, this there's this story, you know, mainline quest storyline that sort of gets you to sort of get invested into the underpinnings of this society that is at play. You know, with Fallout 4, it's the whole battle between the Brotherhood of Steel and the Institute, this sort of secret society of people who are synth, you know, called synths, 
and they're trying to replace people with robotic versions of people in the commonwealth and to for the greater of mankind but the brotherhood of steel is there to sort of you know prevent you know machines from taking over the world and then you have like subgroups like the railroad who are there to sort of act as like the in-betweens and there's so much it, it's really is the buffet of gaming where it's just like i could do all of that but i could also just do my own thing i could just build my own town and just sort of role play as i see fit and that's always been the beauty of fallout to me even when i got into the series with three it's like i can truly build a character and build their sort of story as i see fit sort of thing yeah and i think what four does so beautifully that you kind of touched on that none of the other fallout games have been able to do is the sort of post sims 4 post minecraft post animal crossing element of the settlement building um but then also the whole second act of the game uh being entirely nonlinear mm-hmm. uh, in a deeply overwhelming and like hard to conceptualized way mm-hmm. um again sort of for the listeners at home i guess the plot beats of this game are yeah you volt tech the mm-hmm. company that is licensed to make all of these apocalypse shelters famously has this secondary prerogative of experimenting on humans in order to create like a master race that can survive mm-hmm. the post-nuclear world um you begin the game before the bombs drop as like a couple um either depending on if you're a man or a woman you're like a lawyer nora or uh a ex-military dude nate who has just been discharged from a war Uh, You recently have a child, and because of Nate's military service, you're given space in a vault. The experiment in that vault is that you're going to be cryogenically frozen and then let out like 200 years after the bombs drop. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, the bombs instantly drop in a really sick scene Mm -hmm. um, that you see of like the bombs falling um, over Boston. Which Um, was the first time the series ever depicted because the in the fallout universe it's called the great war you know which only lasted for two hours and it's the first time the series actually ever depicts that happening which is shocking i mean we knew it was we knew it happened throughout the series and in fact when you start the game you know it's going to happen pretty much like you know there's a sense that something awful is about to happen and the fact that you more or less get to experience that day, the fact that it's so short, it's still very shocking. That yeah. yeah, yeah. And one thing I've always loved about that section of the game, that very early section where you're basically just creating your character and picking your stats, um, and then 
you're forced to buy a spot in the vault. Uh, mm-hmm. The dialogue won't let you do anything else. Is that the visuals of it are, once again, it's the Bethesda magic of kind of taking bets on sort of niche references. It's this very sort of Douglas Sirk, uh, Technicolor dream worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in Sanctuary Hills, which will later become a actual location in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like a home of the future planned suburban utopia that you can kind of find out, I know, autistically from playing <laughs> the game so much. You can find out through like terminal entries that like you were offered a home there because of your husband's military service or if you are playing as the man because of your military service. Yeah. But um, it's, you're living in this world where you have like a robot butler where everything is incredibly oversaturated. Everything looks beautiful. Like you're, you're, you're living in this incredible automated home. And then all of a sudden, in 15 minutes you're watching you're you're getting lowered into an elevator into a fallout shelter and watching boston get laid to waste yeah Um, well your baby cries with some of like the best child voice acting you've ever heard because it's the most grating noise in the world (laughs) it's so true it's just screaming (laughs) yeah it it, it's in turn you know anything from movies music books games whatever it's like you know you have that like hook that entices you like what a way to hook the player in just seeing the end of the world like and granted you don't see like the bomb per se destroying like everything but you get enough you see like the shock wave like hit you as you're going down the elevator and it's very satisfactory as someone and I'm sure for other people to like finally see that depicted because it's, you know, it's always alluded to in the series, the great war. Mm-hmm. And one of the DLC expansions of fallout three is playing like a pivotal battle in the sort of China, the Sino China or the Sino American war in Alaska. Um, like it, there's always like been breadcrumbs about what that was like, but to finally experience it is like, you know, literally, it's just like, oh boy, like, oh, I, you know, and then the fact that, you know, while you're cryogenically frozen, you watch your, you know, your significant other get murdered and your baby stolen, and then you're forced into this very just rough, aggressive, hostile world of 200, like 200 years later, um, in, the fact you know the vault is like so close to your home where you first start the game and is like it feels so just cold and mean like the fact that when you exit the vault and you go down the path uh that you came up from 200 years earlier and you see like all the skeletons of the people who didn't get in uh which was like ooh and then you know i love to is that like Bethesda games, they do a little bit of like environmental storytelling. So you see like one of your neighbors turned their house into like a sniper's perch. Some, one of your neighbors actually was a drug addict, you know, 
you learn the underpinnings of this, like your what you knew as regular life and just how it divulged into, you know, hell on earth. And I love that it's, even though there's a main quest to sort of tell you where to go per se, and kind of like be your tutorial as it were, I like how that there is still just a level of like, Hey, you can, you know, you can be the sort of uh, Randy and figure and make your own destiny. Like you can, you know, venture off into a part of the map that you technically is more hostile or, you can venture into a place like, you know, the glowing sea, which is like one of my, fa my favorite location, in the entire game where you literally see the crater where the bomb hit. And it's just this irradiated location that like where the sky turns green, nuclear green, and the trees are laid to waste. And it's just full of these disturbing monsters, you know, these uh, rad scorpions and super mutants and, all these just hell, hell spawn creatures. And you like, that's the magic of fallout and four just cause it has like the benefit of like modern technology, like that vision of the wasteland has never been more depicted realistically. And it's, you, you really do get hooked from moment one with that. Yeah. It's, incredible like one of the cruelest aspects to me of fallout 4 and also one of the most endearing is and i think the moment where my because you're only like 20 minutes in at this point the moment where i really realized that like oh this was going to be a big thing for me it's just going to be a big game that like means a lot to me is you walk past the skeletons of your neighbors mm -hmm. um, who you've seen desperately begging to get into this vault um, previously. And then when you get home, when you walk back into your neighborhood, you're greeted by Codsworth, your robot, your butler. robot butler, who has been waiting for you your yeah. lawn and maintaining your house for 200 years and <laughs> fight being a robot and this is like it is really funny but it's also very dark is despite being a robot is that i guess the voice acting here is really like the showstopper but like is mm -hmm. visibly pained yeah that, like when you come and is like oh he has a british accent he's like oh <laughs> wow it's been 200 years and you don't <laughs> just shown up and i've i've had to kill people and and you know <laughs> rats have been eating your house alive and i saw a man walk away with your baby and mm -hmm. it's horrible and it's so funny and it's so engaging yeah it, it it's so yeah i mean it's the real magic of Fallout. It's like mixing this like comedy. Fallout has so many ridiculous elements to it, but like at the core of it all is this very just like harsh 
unwelcoming world that has now become the reality and Codsworth is such a great just like getting you accustomed to what happened while you were gone for so long and yeah i mean he he it's 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 a great way of just really getting you situated with what's going on without having to be like upfrontly told by like an npc like well see this is what happened in the 200 year you know like codsworth has a level of person personality i don't know what the term is level of like connection that you already had even if it was brief like you have that connection to the old world with him and his like foppish over the top you know delivery just adds like it's like the it's like the awkward laugh that you would have at a situation and from there you're allowed to sort of do what you do as you please now granted you have the sort of overarching task of finding your son but you know you can experience the game as you see fit and this is the beauty of fallout 4 is that it really embraces the sandbox more than anything where you can approach it in a sort of traditional like shooter game like you obviously you have your guns and your melee weapons to sort of defeat enemies level up increase your skills role play in a sense but hey you could you know go into concord and meet preston garvey and you know learn about the you know the minutemen and how to build settlements which is a big part of the game like you were talking about like the sort of flavor of the month minecraft build your own place sort of thing well you don't have to like you can keep moving forward or you can go to diamond city and learn more about the sort of lore of the commonwealth like there's there's enough there to keep you like curious about like the society that is play you know controlling boston the boston wasteland and but it's never like explicitly said this is how you're supposed to like progress through things it's it's all up to you which is kind of like a it's a bethesda trademark but if it's it feels very american in the sense of like you can do as you please you know you can be this savage killer that just brutally murders everyone or you can be like a diplomat and get settlements on the Minutemen on your side or you can team up with like Nick Valentine and you know learn more about how you know who has your son like who's Kellogg all these underpinnings like it, it's like a spider's web of like branching possibilities and that's the fun of fallout like fallout is this like ever encompassing uh like well that you descend into that is full of branching paths and choices that are purely player driven it's player expression at some of its highest levels and it's really just addicting as all hell. Yeah, it sucks you in in a way, and it it's clever in its design as a game. Um, I've always felt this. I noticed it from like the first time that I'm there. Is the vault that you're in, which I think I'm 
imp- I'm actually impressed with myself that I've forgotten enough of the lore that I had mm-hmm. so carefully cataloged at mm-hmm. the time. But I think it's Vault 111 is yes. the one that you come out of. Okay. Yes. That is the one of the extremes of the map. It's like the upper left corner. Yeah, and, it's and it, it's pretty north in terms of the map. Yeah, it's um and then below it's you know sanctuary, and then you go down and um Boston to the south, and then a lot of the map is water. And I guess one critique I've always had of the game is that, and I know that, and I know enough about how this game was developed to know that apparently the ocean was supposed to have a lot going on in it. Um, I've heard that too. Yeah, allegedly, one of the things you discover in one of my favorite locations in this game is... um, one of the only successful vaults to ever exist is like uh sort of on the beach and it's uh a little to the south of Boston. It's where you find Curie. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, companion. Yeah. Um and apparently that vault was supposed to be underwater. That was mm-hmm. supposed to be the gimmick of it is that you had to scuba dive to get there. Um but anyway the the map is organized as such that if we ignore the emptiness of the ocean that you are literally just have a billion diagonal directions to go in and you can make it super difficult if you go in one because it gets more that it levels based on how far south and how far east and west you go yeah so if you go to one of the extreme directions the game becomes really hard. Um, Codsworth will direct you towards Concord, which is like the nearby town where you meet the Minutemen. Um, and that's the pretty uh, timely shooter route of taking the game. Like it almost immediately gives you a Deathclaw as a big boss and a super power armor and a minigun and a Vertibird. Yeah. And it's just like in the first hour of the game, it's like, oh, so much excitement. Yeah. But if you know enough to know that what's going on, uh, you can skip straight to Diamond City, which is also a great location and is like Boston built in Fenway Park. Yeah. Uh, It's one of my favorite locations in the entire game. Um. Yeah, oh, it's beautiful. And it's so lively and, like, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I... it, it gives me a Last of Us 2, because Last of Us 2, in its post-apocalypse, they have a community built inside of a sports stadium, too. Yeah. Well, I've always loved the um, the kind of hipstery Fallout humor of having uh, an allegedly cursed baseball stadium be the <laughs> last place where humanity survives. Yeah. Um, and uh, they make that pretty clear because hanging over this quote-unquote uh, post-apocalyptic metropolis is the, uh, I, I don't know what you would call it, the monuments to the previous like World Series wins for the Red Sox, and you know, the famous. Pe- there are not yeah, many. The pennants, um, the pennants, I guess. Yeah, the pennants, and it's uh, 
it's just this joke of like, oh, well, everybody survived in this like useless stadium that everybody's always mad about. But um, <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, I always go and save the Minutemen because I really love the settlement builder feature. And also eventually you have to. Yeah. Um, it, I guess like the main plot thrust of this game is that Codsworth sends you to the Minutemen. The Minutemen explain settlements to you. Um, settlements I know were pretty controversial upon release. It mm-hmm. was the, it is by far my favorite part of the game. Um, mm-hmm. just because I'm like a Sims girl, I've always, but I, it also feels like you're making a valuable impact on the world. Yeah. Um, and my favorite aspect of it is just that like there are so many settlements and mm-hmm. you can build so many of them and you can design them in your exact way. And when you have fully built your little Sims or Stardew Valley town in every spot, the world feels entirely different. It feels as though you have rebuilt Boston. A yeah, little bit. yeah it, it really does. I mean, I've always had this opinion that like, especially in like, an RPG of this sort of craft is that it feels very like Randian where you're kind of crafting your own destiny and future and sort of like forcing your will upon the mat, the world. Like that's kind of like a gaming thing is that like only you are able to sort of bring harmony or peace to this dystopia and fallout four really hammers this home with the settlement mechanic, which, you know, like you said, a lot of people loved or a lot of people hated because like, again, there's such a hard line divide between old heads of fallout and new fans where you know people are like new fallout doesn't follow my fallout's identity blah 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 don't care you know fallout's allowed to experiment with ideas and you know if you're in a post-apocalyptic game wouldn't it make sense to like you know have a mechanic about building your own like home base of operations so to say and the fact that you know fallout 4 with this mechanic allows for like you to sort of in a way kind of rebuild society obviously not because you know nukes fell shocker you know you can't you can't rebuild pre-nuke america but in comparison to something like fallout 3 where it feels helpless and society is on the fringes and each sort of community is isolated from each other like um in Fallout 3, there's like the town that worships worships an undetonated nuclear bomb versus like, you know, stuff in uh the DC, you know, the capital of DC. It feels like completely separate worlds that will never come together, so to say. Like Fallout 4 feels like in a way you're uniting parts of this isolated while being still very like the commonwealth like you're uniting them together under your sort of belief about how the world should progress and i think that is it's like a power fantasy it's like i am the sort of 
uh, progenitor of the future of this land. And I, it kind of ties in, I guess, with the sort of, you know, them picking Boston as a location is like a choice because, you know, you're obviously trying to tie in probably like American Revolution type imagery and all that stuff. And, you know, you being the sort of uh, like a revolutionary force, whatever faction you pick, the fact that you are sort of crafting the future of these people's lives for generations to come feels very satisfying and very empowering in a way that is unique to this fallout entry well and i've always thought like i think you were clever to make the revolutionary comparison but i've always felt as though the boston setting of this or just the New England setting because the DLC takes you to Maine and also like the glowing sea is I guess sort of like Rhode Island, Connecticut because of where Boston is in real life but it, it doesn't really matter anyway but like I've always felt as though it was gesturing towards the sort of like cult of the shining city and the sort of like puritan roots of american culture um because when you think about boston as a historical place and in the history of literature it was the birth of american art occurred there even if mm -hmm. the birth of america maybe occurred further south in like virginia and that's what fallout 3 explores wow. like literature and visual art all came out of the puritans because they believed in like teaching women to read or something uh -huh. um <laughs> and 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 fallout 4 directly references this a few times one of my favorite like little probably because i was taking like ap american literature when i, when I mm -hmm. played this for the first time but one of my favorite little call outs is um in the bar in diamond city there's like a drunk guy named Hawthorne who will talk to you and he'll tell you drunk dude stories that are all um, like uh, riffs on famous novels by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Like he'll tell you like a version of the Scarlet Letter or like a version of uh, um, what's the one he wrote about the commune. I, I, I couldn't that, tell whatever. you. Um, but to me, it has this like, yeah, it's this place where the world was reformed irreversibly mm -hmm. by this weird cult from England <laughs> just like mm -hmm. decided to move there and didn't even decide to move there. They were trying to move to Virginia and they got blown off course by a hurricane yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. and they ended up there. And it, what you get is this sort of weird repeat of the past where they're literally like gesturing at reincarnation by putting a character named Hawthorne in there and, and mm -hmm. winking at the camera and saying like you're doing what the Puritans did and you get to pick an ideology whether that be like the Brotherhood of Steel or uh, the Railroad which has always been my mm -hmm. one that I pick because I'm a libtard at heart uh, or later the institute or the minutemen and um 
And what it actually, I meant to say earlier, but one of my favorite parts about the settlement building feature, and I think one of the most interesting sort of Randian aspects of it is that later in the game, in the second act, when you start to really associate with factions, um, the way the settlements work start to change. Yeah. Um, part of it is that each faction has its own special settlement that you can sort of only get through that faction. So for the Minutemen, it's the castle. Yeah. Uh, and then Brotherhood is the airport. Um, to me, my favorite one, and the reason really why I always side with the railroad, railroad is Bunker Hill, which is yeah. sort of a pre-existing Diamond City style settlement that you find out has secretly been allied with the railroad the whole time. And you get yeah. to start controlling and then the institute, I forget what they give you, but they give you something. Yeah, um, I don't remember either. <laughs> I've never sided with them, and I've always found it kind of stupid. But, I, um, I never, I never did too. But regardless, like the function of these cities that you're building, essentially, um, starts to change, and it starts to become ideologically influenced based on your ideology. And I mentioned before we started, like I was praising the voice acting of the player characters. Um, and I was referencing the fact that the female player character sounds like Lana Del Rey and she really does. <laughs> yeah. But one of my favorite details of this game is that when you're listening to the radio on your Pip-Boy, once you've started putting together settlements, you can hear, you can tune in to the radio station that your player character has recorded in order to attract settlers to a settlement. Mm -hmm. And you can hear like a little pre-recorded speech in the player character's voice where they're like, oh, move to Bunker Hill. It's safe. Like, mm -hmm. da, 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 da. Um, and that changes based on what, what faction you ally with. But it, as much as this sounds sort of like autistic minutia, it <laughs> it really is like such a fun, uh, satisfying power trip to go on to pick an ideology and to reform a like a famous city that you can go to in real life and see all the same places mm -hmm. in the image of the ideology you have chosen. And hear a voice that you identify as yours, attracting mm. people towards said ideology. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, I, I think the choice of Boston as a location feels wonderful as like a petri dish because it can kind of like, like re, maybe not re, like kind of like distill sort of. American historical events and sort of let you decide the your vision granted when I say vision of America I really just mean the Commonwealth but you know the fact that you know Boston being the sort of progenitor that's another word I've said a lot this episode is progenitor but progenitor of like you know the american revolution and all that stuff and the fact that you get to sort of pick who you think will dictate the best future for this land whether it be the railroad and the sort of like 
like underground railroad connections or the Minutemen just, you know, being sort of akin to revolutionary forces back in the day or the Brotherhood of Steel being sort of the strong arm of the government trying to view this, you know, the needs of the people as best and technology, you know, and then the Institute being sort of the progressive angle of the of the land and people are afraid of the progressives sort of thing. I love that like the 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 hot spot in our reality is that sort of uh place where it all can happen and fall out for. And I don't know about you. I mean, I I think on my first playthrough I sided with the Brotherhood of Steel just because that was like the thing I kind of knew from the from Fallout 3. It's like, oh yeah, Brotherhood of Steel, blah blah blah. Uh Arthur Maxton's really hot uh with his his like Nazi haircut and his big uh his He big, is really hot. Yeah, like un <laughs> unnecessarily so compared to I'll the I'll say rest. it. Also is Paladin Dance. Oh yeah, poor Paladin Dance. Uh which is a another thing too is this is you know been a thing about Fallout is like sort of the spider like it's the spider web where you meet all these different characters whether they be aligned with all the different factions and you meet these characters and they all have their own storylines and some have their own quest lines that cross crisscross with each other and culminate in some really powerful moments and you know paladin dance i think arguably he's my favorite companion outside of maybe valentine um i just love valentine purely because of just you know i love the i love a noir reference like just a noir detective reference that they have and him being that generation one or two synth that he is with his like his like synth skin is like peeled off. You can see his innards uh, in his neck, and you know I, I I have a soft spot for that. But it's like you know, dance being a synth, and the Brotherhood have a very strong stance against synths, and you have to make the decision of killing dance or letting him live. I, I love that Fallout really is like a breathing world fallout 4 is a very living and breathing world that has maybe it doesn't have like deep like world changing consequences per se but every there are moments where the stories collide and you have to make decisions like dance is obviously one of them but like in order to do the uh, railroad if you side with the railroad you have to like infiltrate the institute and like play along with their sort of goals and that's the only way you can kind of like breach in and do your sort of ultimate like act of defiance sort of thing yeah and i i love that like that's an you know i just love that fallout is so minutely uh fallout 4 is so concerned about the minutia of it all like where choices you know things come together and obviously as the story continues into its final part where you have to like more or less like three of the four factions involved blowing up the institute it's like you know who is truly right and i love just how it all you know comes together whatever one you pick 
I love just the sort of um, ultimate, like sort of big future that you see as a player has to sort of come together as. Yeah. I also like, I do, I called them stupid earlier. I do have to throw some love on the Institute as just like a writing decision. Mm -hmm. um, I know a lot of people hate this um, and hate that the main thrust of the plot revolves around the Institute. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I guess, uh, yeah, the main thrust of the plot is that your baby was stolen. Uh, you are a moron who doesn't realize that time passes when you're in cryogenic sleep. <laughs> yeah. so you wake up for a second and you see your baby get stolen. Then you go back to sleep. You're told while the baby is getting stolen that you're going to be kept as a backup. Everybody else is dead. And you think that the baby has just been immediately stolen. It's actually been like 60 years. And the baby was used to create the synths, uh, mm -hmm. these uh, Blade Runner replicant people who like look exactly like humans and whatever and your child is an old man now um but people say that feels very out of place that it like makes the player character seem dumb i would agree with both of those things mm -hmm. however i would like to add that it is pretty sick when you finally get to enter the institute and you realize that what is it's MIT is the the lore of the game is that MIT had like acoustics research labs that were so far underground that they were able to survive the atomic bombs with all of, like the professors and the students and they created a society of intellectuals underground uh that was based on like science and art and um when you finally enter the institute you go underground into this it's literally like Bjork utopia like arisen my senses like just like white walls and like beautiful gardens and robots everywhere mm. and after being in this cold dark wasteland for now at this point at least 15 hours mm. like it, to get to that point. Like you have been through it. If, if you've been doing side quests, it's closer to 30. Like, mm -hmm. and, um, and you enter this world and I can't say that from a narrative standpoint, like if I tried to explain this to somebody who had never played the game, it sounds ridiculous that this world exists beneath Boston mm -hmm. in the post-apocalyptic wasteland. But when you are in that set piece where you're, it's like a cut scene where you're in the elevator and you're coming down into the world, it makes so much sense all of a sudden. And it's so sick. And, mm -hmm. um, it's, again, like, this game to me is just fun. It's an Ouroboros of fun. Like, even if it's, like, not making sense or if it is degrading the player a little bit through its constant sort of cynicism and winking at the camera, and it it is consistently fun, it consistently shocks you, and it consistently delivers the level of sort of Randian, like, 
self-determination that you need in order to feel satisfied. And that's what makes it feel so like joyful and incredible. And it makes you want to spend so much time in that world. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I know people will, people often ridicule four for its writing, you know, in comparison to its predecessor, which was new Vegas in, in, in my honest opinion, I think new Vegas has like stronger writing, but that does not mean four is any less. I, I think what four's ultimate goal is trying to elicit an emotion out of you. And it's not it necessarily, it's not about logic or um, making sense or as thoroughly thought out as something like New Vegas, where every bit of this, of the, the Mojave wasteland of that game seems so meticulously thought out and seems to operate within logic Four's universe feels so driven purely by emotion because of the fact that the main crux of the game is finding your son. And then the big reveal is that your son is the leader of the Institute. And suddenly now, you know, and your son, who is this now looks, I mean, technically is older than you. He's, you know, he's gray, he's an older man and he's dying of cancer and you know suddenly the world of the game has shifted where it's now your son you know through way you know the game explains where it's like he they needed uncontaminated dna and uh, you know a baby can be influenced versus an adult you know semantics basically suddenly the game now becomes more about it's not so much about like logically explaining things, but it's more like, where does your heart sit in this? Do you side with your own flesh and blood and your son, or do you side with the sort of ultimate goal of humanity in this one location of the world? And I love that fallout isn't afraid to sort of dip into that water. It maybe not does it. Maybe it doesn't do it gracefully, but I like that that is a main part of the experience. It's like, where would you side your allegiance with? Do you side your allegiance with your son, even though you don't per se maybe agree with your son's goals for humanity? Do you side with, you know, uh, Maxim and the Brotherhood of Steel? Or do you side with the sort of local militias of the railroad in the Minutemen, like it really kind of just plays with your emotional goals as a player. Like where does my allegiance truly belong at the end of the day? Cause originally my allegiance is with Sean, you know, my son, but turns out my son is trying to like turn people into cyborgs more or less like, yeah. Like I, I find that fascinating and it's captivating as a sort of like make your choice moment in a RPG, you know. Well you go. Oh sorry, I it just that it's complex writing, even if it's ridiculous, it 
dares to do something very interesting and in making the uh, like the whole time you're traversing this world and you're having it explained to you throughout the whole first act of the game what you understand is that the institute is much like caesar's legion from new vegas is like has very little shade to it is pretty straight up evil essentially they believe themselves to be the progenitors of humanity and so all of these settlements that are getting built they are purposefully sabotaging by killing people and replacing them with cyborgs who like i guess sabotage things i don't know and um then in the second act of the game you are or i guess the third act because it takes a while to get to the institute you are introduced to the idea that you actually have the most reason to sympathize with them. That like the greatest, the most justifiable faction is in fact the Institute, not because what they're doing is justifiable, but because you, your child runs it and believes in it. And you've spent the whole game trying to connect with that person Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden you're meeting them and you're talking to them and they remember you and they're saying, hey, this is what you need to be doing. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. It's it is risky and the Blade Runner shit like it doesn't really fit. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah, it's it's a choice. It, but. It. It doesn't really fit, but in that regard, it creates something by create by by putting this wild idea in there, it just like elevates the game to this new point of being something entirely unique. Yeah, it's, just, like it, total it's, mishmash. It's heightened melodrama, basically. Yeah. And if anything, I'm a firm believer that melodrama only enhances a story. Like, I know people will be like, eh, melodrama, blah, 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 blah. Who cares? Like, who cares what they think? Like, a little bit of melodrama enhances just, like, the moment-to-moment -moment decision making. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is a game where you're fighting against irradiated humans that look like muscular shrek monsters and giant scorpions and you know god knows what a death claw is supposed to come from you know while you're having guns that are literally launching mini miniature versions of nuclear warheads like fallout as a sort of iconography and sort of images and all that sort of stuff is already over the top like the bits and bobs are so heightened that i think a moment like the reveal of what the institute is who is running the institute for me feels logical like that feels perfectly in line with the sort of thing even if it is ridiculous and kind of like you know out of left field I think it sets up a big choice for the player. It's like, and, you know, I think that, um, 
granted i have not played fallout 3 in a like a over a decade i think but i feel like the choices you know between the brotherhood institute militia the minutemen and the railroad there's more there's something there's just more personal stakes at play like all i remember from 3 was like you either picked the brotherhood or you picked the enclave and all i remember about my time with fallout 3 is picking the brotherhood cuz they're i guess the quote good guys of that wasteland versus the enclave who is like the remnants of the us government sort of thing and i i, I feel like the sort of quandary that the player has to face in four is more personal whether or not it makes complete sense or makes is like thoroughly explained or what have you i yeah. think four, four four earns that sort of like in any game there's always the moments like you have to make your choice you know you have to make a decision for the future of this world and I feel like four has that uh, extra layer of like urgency at play versus something like three where three feels just like two forces at play in, at least from my memory. I, if I refresh my memory, I may, may have a different point of view, but you know, four earns it's sort of like finale, I think. Well, three, I mean, the conflict of three is, should people have water? <laughs> <laughs> oh my and god, that's so true. Should people have clean water? And for as much as people love to praise three, four, maybe it could have been more focused. But the conflict of four is, is transhumanism good? Okay? Is yeah. uh, slavery bad? Um <laughs> Bigotry shows up just like as something both with synth and with ghouls that shows up like constantly. It's ever literally like every human issue is encapsulated in this. And probably they could have cut a few out, like I will admit, but yeah. like, it's all there, especially when you consider also like um the companions in four to me are the strongest set in the fallout franchise and i know a lot of people will be mad at me for saying that because people really love the like new vegas companions this is your tea this is my tea okay <laughs> but my tea is that the the Fallout 4 companions, which are largely introduced through side quests, I think if you were to like speed run the game, um, you, and you only, mostly miss them, yeah, and only play with the main quest, you would only get Piper, who is <laughs> a journalist, um, Nick Val Valentine, uh, the noir detective, yeah, Synth, yes, yeah, Synth, he's like a an obvious synth though he's like a prototype so yeah he's he's one of the first generations of synth where it's like obvious he's a synth he's like gray skin it's it's yeah. he's a, a really cool design character oh i love his design it's yeah. one of my favorites in the entire franchise 
And I've always loved um, the sort of required, you have to unlock him. And, and the mission that you unlock him through is visiting a vault that has been overrun by the Boston organized crime community. Uh, yeah. Uh, and run for 200 years. And so you're fighting off like, Men and women in armored tuxedos with machine guns who speak cartoonish Boston accents in an underground vault in the subway system. Yeah, it's so camp. It's so cool, though. Yeah, I love this. Is these are like the little eccentricities that make Fallout Fallout. Like, yeah, you know, you can have that along with something like, you know, Nuka-Cola, or like how so many products are literally just nuclear war-themed, like sugar bombs are just like, it's a cereal brand that's like, where the cereal is shaped like nukes. Like, there's an irreverence to the sort of like, there's a reverence in little places and, you know, whether it be side quests or environmental details, that's something I've always like loved about Fallout. It's like this, like, look, it's like this edginess to it all, like where nuclear war is just literally the culture, like so yeah. much so that we revert to the fifties, you know, down to car designs, house designs, you know, you know, the men and women are in like, you know, the women are dressed like Lana Del Rey chemtrails over the country club album cover to, or the men are just, you know, in business suits and polo shirts, you know, uh, that's like the real just it's like uh, the icing on the cake of the Fallout universe where it's just this like really it's like self-parodying sort of irreverent love all the sort of things about this era of America but like hey now you have a floating robot sort of thing the prote- or the protectatrons or um, you know all, all, all these like little tiny things that just make the universe feel so complete and yeah. uh yeah i mean that quest is i i like i remember because i was like refreshing my memory on four and it's like oh yeah i remember that quest i remember i remember just meeting piper outside diamond city and just piper's just whole whole her whole vibe is just like so charming um dance dance was one literally me <laughs> yeah she 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 is cunt she is she is moderate to veer cunt severity yeah she's <laughs> I, so annoying and yeah. that's like, the funny part is like everybody in diamond city which bills itself as like the last vestige of humanity hates her and wants her out <laughs> because she's writing a newspaper where she just it's like a gossip rag like she just talks like people getting divorced and yeah. like <laughs> how the mayor is having an affair oh yeah like and she has the voice acting there again is immaculate she talks like this and she's like do you believe in freedom of the press <laughs> it's it's hilarious. Yeah, the I, other companions are also incredible. I, I mean, love dance is my favorite. Dance was my favorite. My dance first was point. the one that I romanced because I thought he was hot. Me too. I um, loved, um, you know, strong the super mutant. Mm-hmm. 
His whole tea, for those who <laughs> I need to say it, is that there is, um, you know, radio is a big part of Fallout on the radio you play on your Pip-Boy that plays like 50s music or whatever. There's like a hipster radio station in this one um, <laughs> that plays Shakespeare plays. Um, it's also like another like flavor of the month thing where they're directly referencing the book Station Eleven that had been a big bestseller like a few mm-hmm. years prior. Um, but <laughs> strong, a super mutant. Here's the play Macbeth and um, thinks that the milk of human kindness is a real drug that he can take that will make him stronger <laughs> than humans. Yeah. <laughs> and then he'll start adventuring with you in order to find the milk of human kindness. And he only speaks in broken English. And yeah. so he'll be like quoting Shakespeare and he'll be like, to be or uh to be. Uh, and it's like <laughs> so stupid, but it makes me laugh every time. Yeah, uh, it, I love the super mutants in these various entries because they're all some sort of like cracked out version. Like I remember in New Vegas, there I forget her, the one super mutant's name that is like dressed up as a girl, and super mutants oh, all. Tabitha. Yeah, Tabitha. Yeah, like they all. Super mutants all look the same. They're all these like steroid monster men. Um, and she is like wearing like this like floral dress. And I I think she's like, uh, you know, you know, I, I can't remember. I don't want to say something and I don't, but like I love how that she is one of your companions in New Vegas, is like this version of a super mutant, and then in three has Fox. Uh, the sort of like I want to say he was like more kind of like a what is it like a deep thinker super mutant he wasn't he's not like the others sort of thing like he he's able to sort of like understand the severity of things I only remember him because he was my companion in three because yeah. uh, who doesn't want to have like a giant uh, Hulk monster as your companion <laughs> well I always go with Okay, well, there are two that I love in this game um, that I haven't mentioned yet. I mean, I love them all, but there's Kate, um, who I darkly think is funny because Kate, I think, in this moment, in this game that is full of Bethesda nonsense, like just, (laughs) like, loose plot threads and, like, just this massive world of kind of like unraveling ideas. Kate is a um, companion that you meet. I I think she's one of the ones you're forced to meet, but I, I forget how that articulates. I, but yeah, I don't remember either. is in the combat zone, which is like a raider bar where they make people fight to the death. Mm-hmm. And um, she's inexplicably Irish, even though Fallout always makes a big point of not explaining how the other countries like fared in the war. Yeah. Um, and you don't really get an explanation as to why she's Irish, other than that you are in Boston. Um, 
Also, this has a weird, I guess, like 2015, Me Too is starting to ramp up. And I think feminism, just as like a public movement, was really taking a a, a hit or, you know, hitting. Yeah. yeah. And she isn't a feminist character. And I actually think she's pretty well written, but mm-hmm. they do a very heavy-handed, ham-fisted job of telling you that she was raped in all times. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's you have this Irish drug addict who carries a baseball bat following you around and being like, Oi, what? Like that man is staring at me too much. It makes me feel like I was a little lassie. Like, what? <laughs> and it's it's so sad. And it's also funny. And she's also a pretty useful companion because she can hack things and pick locks. Mm-hmm. She's actually a pretty touching storyline also about like drug addiction that I think is one of the, actually the few well-written moments in the game. But yeah. um she's an interesting one and the one that i always end up going with yeah she's more interesting than mama murphy yeah mama Um, murphy the like the the oracle drug user uh, that you meet early i've always assumed that mama murphy was like supposed to be a companion or was supposed to be a more important part of the story and they cut it oh i i'm willing to believe that too i mean she feels kind of shoehorned in in that Concord area of the game where it's just like, why is this jet user like preaching, you know, her, you know, uh, Hercules, the vis- the three visions or the three uh, fortune tellers type thing. I was like, why are you here? You feel like you were a, a last minute change sort of character. I um, think that- I guess she's there as a tool a little bit for like speedrunners. I know I've, I'm interested in speedrunning as a subculture and I'm always like watching speedrun live streams or whatever, but I don't really understand it. <laughs> my understanding of Mama Murphy is that in Fallout 4 speedrunning, which is still a really active thing because people have not really been able to break it, mm-hmm. is she's pretty crucial because if you give her enough literal heroin... <laughs> she'll reveal the whole plot of the game to you through her future visions before you like break the first 15 minutes i kind um, i kind of love yeah that's it's pretty cool i actually but think that's it, really funny it's like, yeah it's... Um, and and you can start basically in like the third act um, <laughs> and the other yeah she's interesting I've yeah, always kind of thought about that. The, the other companion I like, though, that I need to shout out before we get sidetracked is um, Curie. Uh, mm-hmm. Curie is Podsworth counter- counterpart. Um, Podsworth is a, who we've mentioned previously, who's also a companion, is a butler robot. And I forget what like the model in the diegesis of the game is called. It's Oh, it's Mr. Handy. It's Mr. Oh, Handy. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then there are also Miss Nannies, who are <laughs> the, like made robots. And in my favorite location of the game, because it's interesting as like a piece of Fallout lore, 
There's a vault you can visit that is still successful and has thrived over 200 years because they rejected the experiment. They're like the only one to ever do that, at least Mm -hmm. as far as we know. And um, the experiment was that they were going to have medical tests run on them by a series of doctors. Mm -hmm. Um, The doctors who got isolated from the rest of the vault decided that they were going to store all their knowledge in a robot um, modeled after one of the doctor's uh, crush from study abroad. Uh, You get a French nanny robot who understands the entire history of science (laughs) follow you around. And then she decides that she wants to put her consciousness in a brain dead synth and become a human. Yeah. (laughs) To me, when I think of camp, like honestly, like love him to death, but fuck John Waters. Like fuck (laughs) David Lynch. Fuck everybody who's ever like attempted camp. That is camp. That, is, <laughs> that writing right there. Like if I was at the Met Gala notes on camp, I would come dressed as like synth Curie. Like I'd get like a pixie cut and I'd wear like a flannel. <laughs> and I'd like, I'd go around talking in the horrible fake French accent and being like, what is this? I am a robot. I don't understand. Like, what? It's, looking looking camp straight in the eye. It's so funny. And <laughs> so endearing too. It like it's again another amazing point of this game is it it looks camp straight in the eye. It goes all of its side quest. It does these ridiculous 180 turns through like narrative acceptability, but it ends up at a place that's so endearing and so fun and so engaging. And she's a perfect example of that is like, you end up spending so much time with this stupid robot that like doesn't understand the world and speaks in a French accent. And your reason for that is that some guy who you never meet had fucked a girl in France like a hundred years ago. (laughs) And like, it's so good. Like, Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm stupid, but like I think that that's like really creative and funny, and because yeah, no, it, life is weird, yeah, it's like realistic. Yeah, Fallout is just it's heightened reality through the lens of like Fallout's entire gist comes or gist comes out of like in my eyes, like the '90s, like. Well, what if the Cold War didn't end? And the, what if the Cold War got out of control? And what if our enemy wasn't Russia, but in fact China? Like, you know, it's this like what if scenario. And because it's like a what if scenario, like there is there's no rule book per se. You can go as stupid as you want, or you can be as serious as you want. And I think you know, Fallout has all these like wonderful little moments that you technically in some cases don't discover like they're you know that's this is like one time where i'm like well the open world has the open world format has merit where it's like i can discover this on my own merit and i can progress this quest further on my own merit and I think Fallout, and this is just me, 
I'm I'm not like a big uh my personal taste is not in like the Dungeons and Dragons like Elder <laughs> excuse me, Elder Scrolls universe. Like I fantasy is like it has to be a certain thing for me to catch on. Like The Witcher, I I was able to grasp onto sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But like Fallout, I can immediately be hooked onto it. Just I feel like I'm more interested in that sort of aesthetic world. But like <clears throat> I feel like because it is that sort of what if scenario, the rule book is thrown out. You can have a French robot who's trying to understand humanity while being a puppet humans approximation thing. You can have a synthetic noir detective. You can have your like beautiful little boy toy synthetic uh, companion and dance, or you can have your robot butler uh, Killatron as your thing, or you can have a literal dog as your companion. I mean, the, the, the possibilities are endless. And I think that's sort of, this is like a case where I'm like, you know what? Open world games, Matt, they're valid. You know, this is the validity of open world is like, when the writers and the sort of scenario designers and the quest designers have sort of that carte blanche blank check to do what they want, I'm all on board for that. So, um, it's, um, I guess I have a final word to say about for mm -hmm. it's that you can complain about the main quest line being scattershot all you want but it has a clear theme and the theme is rebuilding and the survival of humanity and and it's very isp season 3t it is and it's um the side quests explore this in really funny and interesting ways whether it's like the radio host from diamond city who's like a little incel who is so awkward (laughs) set him up to get mugged and then he'll defend himself and then become kind of an asshole because he gets too confident or um one of my favorite things in this game is Drinkin' Buddy, the bartender robot that you can get to go live in <laughs> one of your settlements that you just find in like an abandoned Irish pub somewhere. <laughs> or, um, oh, also great is um, the Chinese submarine quest mm-hmm. where you find out that actually like it's kind of spooky and like leaves a room for fallout five is that you find out that actually china didn't bomb boston because the submarine they sent to bomb boston never actually launched its bombs and it's still sitting in the harbor and Mm -hmm. the guy who was in it is a ghoul now and he talks in broken english and you can like become his friend Mm -hmm. um and um and then you have to guess who actually bombed boston that's interesting mm-hmm. there's the um i guess one of the darker side quests is you can encounter a scam cult that just takes all your stuff and you never get it back <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean 
it's humanity at its best and at its worst in the darkest possible world like yeah in surviving and being funny and being stupid <laughs> i i have one other thing to say on this note and it's that there is one part of this game that i just won't apologize for and that i think is absolutely idiotic and it's the supernatural side quests um there's one really long one that i'm not kidding you has won awards like uh-huh. people think that this is the best quest in gaming history yeah um, it it involves if you hang out in the bar in diamond city long enough some dude will come and tell you about this mansion in downtown boston where like a guy has been living for 400 years and he's possessed by the devil or something and you have to like go through a bunch of creepy locations and like harness magic Um, and it's stupid and it doesn't fit at all and it takes me out of the game and it makes it feel just kind of it feels like it's the it, that's where it, that's where it turns a corner and it feels like Bethesda is making fun of me for playing the game. <laughs> I can see, but that. I will say, other than that, the camp elements smashed on top of the like flavor of the month Minecraft elements smashed on top of the like weird political meditations of Fallout mm-hmm. create this like what I believe to be like a, a true masterpiece and mm-hmm. just a world. I, I think all the time about the way this world looks mm-hmm. and like the idea of American capitalism gone awry and building this massive metropolis out of plastic and then getting nuked in that plastic rotting and spending all of the time spending all this time wandering around and getting drunk and meeting all these random people in that world like it's cozy and it's fascinating and it's funny and it's also like the thing we've neglected to mention the shooter element of this is really fun and it's Mm -hmm well and it's challenging and it requires a little bit of thought but not too much if i could do it you could do it you know mm-hmm. and it's, um and that's the bread and butter of this is it's just mm-hmm. all of these things combined into one yeah something that yeah i mean oh just so unique and so incredible oh, yeah no i agree um yeah i i I don't think I could put it any better. So I think what's best is we move into the second game of tonight, which is a uh, fallout 76.
slangs or now i really think so i think this is gonna i i've said everything i needed to say about paul for it i think that is a, a powerful thing yeah i i agree uh i feel like 76 won't have as much but i think it's important to talk about 76 just as a cultural moment for fallout oh. and bethesda um yeah I have but, less to say about 76. I have kind of like one diatribe to go on and then a, <laughs> a few other points, but it's not as... This This is a certified third place, three power plus episode. So uh, everybody uh, get ready for... <laughs> if you've made it this far, congratulations. Um, but yeah, Fallout 76 came out November 14, 2018. Again, for modern systems, PS4, Xbox One, PC... This is uh, the first uh, Bethesda's first online multiplayer game. It was like the first major online game for Fallout. It was. Um, I wanted to talk about this briefly, merely because of just sort of the. It feels like this is like the. Pro- I was going to say it again, progenitor, but the birth of sort of like Fallout really becoming mainstream. Like this is post Fallout Four. This is post um, the mobile game Fallout Shelter, which actually isn't that bad. I I remember sinking way too many hours into that game, but besides the I fact, I enjoy it. Yeah, um, but yeah, this is this feels like when the series was just like, how do we keep people entertained by the concept of Fallout while we wait like ten plus years to make the next one, sort of thing. And um, I remember getting this game because I have I had a group of friends who were very into Fallout 4 and they were very excited by the concept of an online Fallout. So they I got forced into buying this game, even though I didn't really want to at the time, because I felt like Fallout was more of a single player thing. And um, to say that Fallout 76 was a inexperience at launch is an understatement um this game was broken at launch (laughs) it was 
genuinely jank in a way that Bethesda games normally Bethesda games are like some level of jank and broken, but this was like a new level of like just like rough edgeness for Bethesda. I mean, I remember like the game is like 50 gigabytes or no, the game's like 40 gigabytes and the first update patch to fix bugs was oh, was 50 gigabytes. Like it was bigger than the game itself. Like to to highlight how much of this game was like in a dire straits sort of thing. Um this game was full of griefers at launch. There was a famously known the uh group of people who would hoard the nukes and would detonate them over the beginning area of the game for new players and force them into raid bosses uh right from the get-go uh and also crash the servers. Um I just remember me and my friends set up a settlement right on a golf course and we just like lived our lives there um for a time being. Um but yeah I mean what is your thoughts on Fallout 76, Samantha? Um 76 was I, I know interesting is kind of a vague and overused word when we're talking about stuff like this, but it was an interesting experience for me. I think part of what motivated my sort of aforementioned turn towards Fallout 4 was my sort of vague awareness that there had at that time been a pretty recently released Fallout game that everybody hated. Yeah. Um, and of course, I being the little fascist contrarian that I was, I was like, ooh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to four because it felt safer, but then um, I entered onto 76 after, about six months after release when at the following E3, they had announced a bunch of new fixes to it. And then also, um, oh, basically they did a damage control press conference. (laughs) We fixed the game. And also, guess what? There's going to be NPCs now and a bunch (laughs) of other stuff. And I never really even saw that stuff materialize. Like I I have never played with the new, like the new, uh like npc storyline neither have i i mean my time with 76 was in that like first six months and i always found it interesting in this sort of like to use the term social experiment sort of thing yeah i uh, my thing about 76 and i i kind of articulated this to you earlier but it's to me, an elaboration on, or not even an elaboration on, I would say a complication of the thematic message of four um, in the most left field sort of psychedelic fascinating way where the experience of playing Fallout 76 mm-hmm. is, first of all, you're already framing it through, even if you're downloading it today, like on Wednesday, April 12th. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
you know that people hated it at launch. It was an oh, yeah. inescapable media fiasco that was pretty ubiquitous at the time. And then you're going in and the plot, there's not really a plot to this one. But no. the plot, I'll summarize it, is that Vault 76, which um, I guess interestingly, both Fallout 4 and Fallout 76 have main stories that are elaborations on throwaway flavor dialogue from Fallout 3. Mm-hmm. Um, Vault 76 was like an stat, like you hear, you can hear a paladin in the Brotherhood of Steel mention it in Fallout 3 that they had filled a vault full of geniuses in, in West Virginia. Um, mm-hmm. And then similarly, the Institute plotline is like kind of a side quest in Fallout 3. But mm-hmm. um Fallout 76, the idea is that West Virginia being the like most forgotten U.S. state, they knew that no nuclear bombs would hit it. Mm -hmm. So they put a vault in central West Virginia and filled it with influential artists and architects and engineers and scientists. And you are one of them. Um, 25 years after the bombs drop, there is quote unquote reclamation day. And it's the day you as a character start and you are pushed out into the wasteland, uh, to start building a little society. Um, and you do get quests and there are factions, um, again, for both mine and sam's experience of the game there were no npcs involved in this i guess there are now yeah but when i played the game it was just you would get it over the radio or from robots yeah Um, i remember diegetic explanation within the game is that west virginia had had after nuclear power took over coal power and west virginia being a coal mining state it had been reorganized so the entire labor force was robots and everybody was starving <laughs> at the entire at the time of the great war so there were all these robots around who will talk to you but there are no people yeah um there's also again flavor of the month a weird sort of walking dead maybe even like hunger games influence here in um that there are zombies around um Mm -hmm. because nobody was actually killed by the nuclear bombs but everybody was killed by a sort of zombie virus that took over and was mutated by the nukes um all of this contributes to ultimately my take on fault 76 which is that you are downloading a game that you know that everybody hates you're into one of the most beautiful worlds Mm -hmm. i've ever seen rendered in 3d Mm -hmm. west virginia famously in real life is a very beautiful place and it is i think really depicted well in the game yes i I agree on the beginning area it's um i've very briefly i've spent a lot of time in western virginia and very briefly spent some time in west virginia and it looks like that it's this um beautiful Appalachian world where unlike in the rest of the Fallout universe uh, the trees are still 
sprouting leaves that the flowers are still in bloom. Um, and you are given free reign over this world. And in a weird sort of psychedelic turn, the reality of the game is that after you're given free reign of this world, you discover that following the bomb drop, there was a number of sort of charismatic individuals. There were a number of charismatic individuals who tried to reorganize society. They all got killed by the zombie plague. And now you are wandering through a world of skeletons with a bunch of other preserved geniuses <laughs> uh, who also happen to be fellow MMO players who are all griefers and idiots. Uh, <laughs> and you're in this world of skeletons, which is also very beautiful, are basically just encouraged to do whatever you want, build whatever you want. You're buying furniture and clothing from the atomic shop, which is sort of a Fortnite style pay to win <laughs> in game currency system. So you can build the coolest house. Um, you're playing through really derivative quests that are just sort of retextures of four and are fed to you through annoying radio and robot voices. <laughs> and then through all of this, you end up just getting encouraged to embrace nuclear war and start nuking things for fun in order to gain more atomic shop money around the skeletons of the people who were killed in the first nuclear war. And all the while, because for whatever reason in this game, they decided that the University of West Virginia should have its own radio station. <laughs> the pit boy is playing college radio from the 60s. And this to me is one of the most important textual aspects. Is that you're getting hit with, with during this dark, campy, psychedelic romp through like libertine destruction of the world. The, the soundtrack is, is alternative folk music from the 1960s. <laughs> so what you're hearing while you nuke the skeletons of your former like family and friends, supposedly, is like, wouldn't it be nice if we could do so depressing yeah. and so <laughs> funny. It's like, to me, this game, both through its cultural impact as this meme laughing stock, and also just like when you really examine the plot, is like a massive piece of dark humor performance art oh uh, yeah incredible. It, it's the way i see 76 is it is removing any sort of fallout storyline in the in service of letting people play out in a way how they would react to a situation like this you know how would you go about 
reshaping the world where there's no sort of like brotherhood. I mean, granted they added the brotherhood of steel and later patches and all that sort of stuff. But what would you do if you didn't have your son to save or you didn't have to go find someone or figure out why you got shot? You know, there, there really isn't like an inciting incident per se in a traditional story sense. It's more about, Here's the playground of this wasteland. Here's all the Fallout systems at play from 4. And now you are put together in a lobby with... I forget how many people can be in a lobby at a time. It's like at it's least... It's like kind of a lot. I All I remember was like at least like 30, maybe? I can't remember. But it was a, it was a fair amount. But it's like you get put into a server with like 30 different people and it's like trying to it's one of the greatest social games, you know, because multiplayer games have this added layer of like a social game at play. Like there's a there's mechanical systems at play that sort of like allow you to progress in the sense of like oh, I have better gear, I have better weapons, I have more materials. You know, like, you know, the gameplay to sort of keep you enticed. But what I always found fascinating, even in its broken state at launch, was this sort of, like, meta-narrative at play. Where it's like, all right, the world has ended. What, how are you going to behave in this, you, you know, this dystopia? And if there's one thing that gamers can do when they are given more or less freedom of this magnitude, where it, it is a PvP landscape, gamers will be degenerate little freaks and break it. They will torment people. They will sequester themselves off in parts of the map that can't really be accessed. They will crash the server they will like rebel against the coders and the you know the gods per se of the universe the coders they will crash the server and all this stuff and it is like watching it is like watching to wrap to what you were saying at the beginning of this episode it's like watching your sims go hog wild and you are one of the sims you know, you're not the god per se. You are a sim in the sims of Fallout. And it's so funny because of any of the fall. Okay, well, actually, I'm not going to say that. I, I guess Fallout 70, no, sorry, Fallout New Vegas has kind of an American life-esque critique of like the early 2000s desert wars. Mm-hmm. to uh to articulate but fallout 76 if you actually do pay attention to the plot that's there it's a pretty clear political message mm-hmm. that essentially as many sort of annoying leftists have also i will admit rightfully said rural america has become a colony of urban america and um it it makes that pretty clear through a lot of the messaging. But the funny thing is that 
Bethesda being itself this massive capitalist entity is also just asking people to pay to go into a perfect massive simulation of a rural state and do whatever they want in it. (laughs) It's contradicting itself in a way that's totally funny and to me, totally correct. Like, (laughs) it's just like, oh, nobody cares about West Virginia. Let's create a sci-fi dystopia version of it and then let you nuke it if you want. Like, it's so... And then also chastise you for it, but it doesn't really matter because you don't care about the plot anyway. No, it, you're you're here to fuck shit up, basically. Yeah, and, and it's it, fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah, it, it's the beauty. Other games that this reminds me of, you know, it reminds me of like how Second Life birthed its own sort of society within the game, where people are like building houses and building their own economy within the game and people are like role-playing their own lives within the game but fallout because fallout is already so over the top like players have carte blanche to be over the top i mean granted me and my friends when we played it we were in kind of like our own bubble like where we just set our camp right by the golf course And we, because it was right next to sort of the country club and the country club had a bunch of stuff that you could use, you know, we were playing strategically. We weren't there to sort of grief per se, but, you know, hearing stories about this game where it's just like these like full blood, you know, pure blooded autistic people are here to just torment new players who are coming out of the vault, like, oh, chippery, like, oh my God, I'm going to you know, build my own house and, you know, make a claim for myself in West Virginia. And these people are just dropping nukes on them to either crash the server or put them in front of facing, facing the scorched beasts, which are like level 80 monsters. You know, you start obviously as like level one where your only weapons, like a baseball bat or like a pistol that does like measly amount of damage and scorched beasts, like the, like the Mothman equivalent, sort of monster it's level 80 and even you know you need like power armor and you need like the best weapons in the game you know they're they're the equivalent of like raid bosses and mmos and you have this subsector of people who are just like wouldn't it be funny if i did this like it's not even about progressing whatever story there is in this game or sort of role-playing as what bethesda wants you to do it's about like i've been given the fallout sandbox and what what better way to like abuse the fallout sandbox than to create mayhem of my own scale and volition if and mind you too to get a nuke in this game isn't what i would call easy you have to like find those uh bingo uh, I forget the proper term for them, but they're like these like represent these like numbers with like a, or these letters. Yeah, the yeah. nuclear code. You're supposed to create a nuclear code, and you know you have to find them around the map. And still, you have these like insane people who are like hoarding them, hoarding basically like every server's like launch codes, 
just to like do this and the mayhem that was present in the early day early months of this game was some of the most unfettered like just like rebelling against the system that i've ever seen like and it's like it's funny to me because okay well first of all with reference to the nuclear codes my favorite bug here like my favorite like, <laughs> controversial thing is okay the game came out in november of 2018 just in time for the holiday season yeah um so a lot of people got it for christmas in 2018 and then only to find out that five days later then all the nuclear codes in the game stopped working because of a throwaway flavor animation where it shows you the year that you're launching the bomb <laughs> um, so like it, they had to update it on like january 5th 2019 <laughs> um <laughs> Because like the minute it rolled over to 2019, it, the nukes, which were which were the most important part of the story of the game, stopped working. Um, <laughs> so funny. Also, like it's it. Yeah, you're so right that it's fast. It's it's this study in like what you would do if you were in this world and. Um, I think what's really cool and the reason why I always defend this game, other than just it being fun, which I'll always say, like this mm -hmm. is a very fun game, is that it's it, it's sort of like you said, it's it's like you're ending up in um you're ending up inside the fallout world and not only that but they've put you in kind of the most random place possible in the fallout world like nobody thinks about west virginia no and, um fallout being so over the top i love there's a there's a quality of 76 that i love because west virginia has a really weird overlooked quality of having a bunch of really weird histories and landmarks attached to it that um, nobody thinks about because they're in West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And so Fallout doesn't have to try very hard. Um, a cool location in this game is the like Maharishi like yoga retreat pagoda in the middle of the Appalachian Mountains, which is a real place that you can go in real life. Um, a, a weird cult moved to West Virginia and started like a Hindu yoga retreat in the mountains and <laughs> the location in Fallout 76 and in real life it still sounds like a Fallout 4 plotline but it was real so they just translated it directly to 76 similarly there's like the Wendigos are like yeah. the new um, I want to say mob that's Minecraft terminology but like <laughs> the new kind of boss raid battle that they add similar to like a death claw or a scourge beast is the the wendigo which is i guess like a creature from native american mythology and those things are scary mm -hmm. um they're like i guess in native american mythology the idea is that humans who become cannibals become these awful monsters and so the people after the war who resorted to cannibalism 
have become these monsters and you have to fight them sometimes. And they crawl out of trees and ambush you and look like weird emaciated humans and like, uh, you know, attack you in some of the hardest sections of the game. Yeah. Uh, and so there's all of that. There's also Fallout Camp. Like there's stuff where they're starting to make things up. Um, yeah. My favorite of that is the Mega Sloth. Another yeah. <laughs> element another new element they've added to the game which a fun that i know from my era where i was playing this game every day um, <laughs> that i'll just share with the listeners is that actually the mega sloth was for a time in earth's history a real thing um and is the state fossil of west virginia apparently um south the southeastern u.s used to be a jungle during pangea and there were gigantic sloths and there were fossils in West Virginia of said sloths. And so the way Fallout references that is that a rich mining family genetically engineered sloths to play with their children. Um, <laughs> and they're massive and they now wander around the nuclear wasteland and try to kill people. Um, and so like it's this mix of like real life absurdity with fallout absurdity and then on top of that there's the real life absurdity that you were bringing up of like truly insane people (laughs) holding up in this game and like torturing other human beings yeah Um, (laughs) layer on layer of camp and i don't know a more sophisticated way to word this but it is so much fun yeah (laughs) i will admit even when i had my problems there is a primal layer of fun present in this just nonsense of the game like i can't speak obviously to the current state of 76 because i know they fixed a lot of the problems i know they've probably rebalanced it to not be as so cruel to new players i'm you know and they've added content like the npcs they've added like storylines to the game and all that sort of stuff like i can't speak to that but what i will say is like at the core of this game it, it exists on layers of just like hilarity you know west virginia as you said has never really been mentioned in the fallout universe fallout pretty much takes place in either california new Ve- or las vegas washington dc or boston those have been pretty much the only places of interest so when you have a game that's like set in west virginia of all places it's already kind of silly like on premise like the state that one of the like five states in America that no one cares about on the day to, or thinks about on a day to day basis, you know, it's like add it's like making a Fallout game set in like North Dakota. Like, why is it here? Why they should do that? <laughs> you just make it a like, yeah. Just I would I would love like Fallout like Idaho. It's like not why is this here? Oh, I don't know. Just because it, you know, who wouldn't want to rebirth Idaho sort of thing? Like, okay, like they they probably couldn't have like I don't know Fallout Georgia, and they couldn't like they were like oh we have to save that for like Fallout 
eight in 2072 or something you know they want to save the actual like locations in america for like mainline games so like what's a throwaway state what's a throwaway location in america that we can like uh create this like petri dish game i don't i know (laughs) west virginia (laughs) it's like i and then you add the fallout camp you add the player driven nonsense it's i i have to mar because i have to marvel bethesda's just willingness to just do something like this because in a day and age when multiplayer games are so very controlled where the environments are sort of regulated by the developers whether it be like you know you only can play these game modes right you know that we provide you or this is the one map and we have like restrictions in place so that like you can't break the game sort of thing I admire Bethesda's sort of whether it be willingness or un not knowing how multiplayer works to just like make a unfettered playground of madness for all these like insane people. Cause I feel like Fallout births insane people who are just who are like thinking of these just like back, you know, gigabrain you know, autistically thought out plans to cause mayhem and destruction on these like pure little baby players who are just like buying the game. It's like, Oh, I can play a game with my friends, you know, not realizing what they're going to be introduced to. And it, I will say that I kind of wish that like, maybe there was like a fallout Four standalone expansion or sequel set in West Virginia, because like you said, it's beautifully realized when the game is running was running. Well, it was a beautifully realized location. It's yeah. um, in many ways you could say it surpasses four uh, in that, in that field, you know, there's something about just the West Virginia landscape that is captivating of a location visually that, you know, kind of hooks you back in and you kind of just want to, you, it, you naturally want to explore it and you want to learn more about it. So I almost kind of wish that like we had like a, I don't know, uh, like our own standalone, uh, miniature fallout game single player fallout game set in west virginia as a result because all the plot details that they did have present are cat or i think interesting enough to propel a single player game it's just you know multiplayer at the time was like the cash cow that everyone was going for battle you know they added a battle royale mode akin to fortnite you know, because Battle Royale is the hot new thing back in 2018. So it's like, you know, how do we how do we get Joe Schmo to play our first person RPG game? Let's add a Battle Royale mode sort of, thing. you know, throw the kitchen sink mentality, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I 
I totally agree. And I fantasized about that previously is that like, I think that one of the most, and I don't think they'd ever do it, especially because Fallout 76 was such a big catastrophe. Mm-hmm. But like, to me, <laughs> the ideal vision for Fallout 5, or alternatively, because mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew this, but they're allegedly developing, and I think it's in filming now. Like, it's that far out they, because they've casted it and everything. A Fallout, like, prestige TV show produced by yeah. Amazon. Yeah, I, I have heard about that. I'm sure it'll be ridiculously bad. Oh, I'm, yeah, I mean. Jenna Ortega is in it, I believe. So good for her. Good for um, her. Good for her. But um my my ideal vision, I have two like futures for Fallout, and I'll get to one later, but my one of mine is actually that I think it'd be really interesting if they leaned into like postmodern meta fiction and did a fallout set in like the timeline of fallout 4 so like rather than 76 which is like 25 years after the war it's like 300 years after the war but in west virginia and they were like oh well actually there was this vault of geniuses and they all went crazy and started murdering each other and also there were sloths and wendigos wandering around and now (laughs) it's the most like brutal wasteland you can ever imagine i i've always imagined that to be kind of a funny idea but um and i think that's like fruitful and like something they should come back to but like you said yeah and i guess you're building off my point but i I think this game would be unsuccessful if the West Virginia environment wasn't so beautifully realized. You mentioned the golf course earlier and like the country mm-hmm. club, um, which is also where you find the enclave. Yes. Here in this game as robots. Um, mm-hmm. Fun fact, once again, weird West Virginia history that I know from playing this game. That's a real thing that like, Greenbrier Resort, which is like a famous luxury ski resort or something in West Virginia, Mm -hmm. um, was they built a massive like vault style fallout shelter there for like Eisenhower and then they never had to use it. So now it's sort of just a tourist attraction. Um, But that's what they based that section on. But I love that area like it's one of my favorite areas in a game ever mm-hmm. because it's so idyllic and realistic and like west virginian luxury like just like the carpets as red oh yeah i remember that and like the bright green golf course and the massive tank robots defending <laughs> and everybody immediately building their houses there because it was the coolest looking location oh yeah it's it's the spot in digital space that like i could make a million paintings or like Mm -hmm. write a million stories about just like the interpersonal narratives that must have occurred and that unreal realization of that real place yeah, I mean that sentence made no sense, but no, it, I get what I mean. I get yeah, I get what you mean. I mean 
it 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 kind of embodies i think what the developers wanted of sort of like being frontiersmen sort of thing you know i think what they wanted probably to emulate you know how fallout 4 emulates sort of the revolutionary american period i think what 76 was trying to do was emulate sort of like of that same era when people were moving west through the unknown frontier of the appalachians so i feel like that's what they were trying to do it's just that when you have fallout rules like the rules have been thrown out so to say but i i mean i remember me and my friends would build we build our house there's like a a cliffside that sort of like overlooked the golf course like the par three and we built our houses on that cliffside and that we like set up this whole like uh like our own like little resorts across this golf course where we had our houses on different like cliff sides and there's something to be said of like when you have not necessarily like real world money involved and it's just like piecing together salvage and scrap from um you know video game logic money there's something to be said of like actualizing your utopia per se and yeah, yeah i i think the golf course best embodied it and I think if we're going, I wanted to say this too, is um, if we're going off like potential Fallout 5 locations, my choices, I had two in my mind. You either do it in New Orleans. I feel like they're overdue for a South location. That's true. Or in my mind, you could do it in like Detroit. That would be an interesting setting in my mind. Like, I don't know, just sort of the uh, already, or, there's already great, like, you know, the abandoned nature of Detroit, I feel like is, you could do something maybe interesting there. I don't know. Fallout, is, you know, looking to the future of Fallout, there's a lot of potential. Like, you know, there's, sure, there's like, they only made 122 vaults or something in the in the lore of Vault Tech. But who's to say you always have to start in a vault? You know, New Vegas proved that you didn't need to be in a vault to, like, have a character. So I would love to see just what what new... I, mean, I guess what I'm ultimately getting is, like, trying to wrap this whole up because of this era of Fallout in this episode is, like, Fallout's magic is the sort of unfettered, un in a way terrifying freedom that it has where you are in control from start to beginning pretty much but bethesda's sort of vision of this total control you know todd howard being like oh yeah everything you can do is contextual everything you can do is you know, you can do what you want. You can shoot NPCs mid-conversation, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think there's something to be said about that style of game that they have pioneered, where it crafts... Not only do you craft the story of your character, but you as a player craft your own stories. Like, 
there's always the saying of the water cooler, like, Hey, did you know you could do this? Or, Hey, I did this. You know, I went here, I found this. I think that's the beauty of these modern fallouts is like, now we have the visual fidelity to have really unique locations in these massive worlds. And we are the gods of our sort of digital underlings and minions sort of in a way. Yeah. I completely agree. Like, I think if I have, like, one thesis for everything <laughs> I said here, it's just that, like, I think the be like the reason that modern Fallout succeeds for me is that Fallout is this interesting mix of, like, grit and 50s nostalgia and futurism that has been imitated and replicated and also then also has a lot of precedent in like of course like Lynch's work and Italian futurism and like I could name everything but like mm -hmm. um it's this fascinating aesthetic universe and four and 76 and a little bit of New Vegas um just sort of let you exist in that world and just put you in this interesting space and let you do exactly whatever you want with it. And mm -hmm. as I pointed out, there's like a lot of a dark, there's a dark tonality to that. It's, it's upsetting at times, at least to me as sort of a moralist. Um, it can be, but um, I, I do appreciate it. And I do think that even if it's upsetting, it's, such an incredible experience and it's of course just a video game and so mm -hmm. it shouldn't be that upsetting and it's it it makes you feel so attuned with every piece of culture and detritus that it's mishmashing together you feel so connected to it all and that's what's incredible about it and then mm -hmm. also just to say like my other idea for fallout 5 is I would I maybe just as like a super fan I'd love to see them do New York but I want to see them go and do it as miserably and early <laughs> and cruel just full of cruelty as they could possibly go like I want to return to the like Fallout 3 Dogma 95 look like just dark pixelated wall of gray texture and mm -hmm. I want a vault in downtown Manhattan where they made all the like Times Square. In <laughs> I was going to say this. <laughs> I was about to say, no, like I want them to try to make them. I want like, you know, the I won't name any specific people, but the like transsexual Catholic uh, <laughs> <laughs> anorexics to get for put in a vault and forced to like actually found like a theological state. And yeah. like watch them no. all dissolve into gloop. Like I want <laughs> I want like literally just any I believe in the brand. Yeah. In such a stupid way. And I want them to exploit my stupidness as much as they can. I want them to attack every element of American life and every subculture and every campy little piece and to just keep 
smashing it together until we get one fully formed aesthetic universe. And until one day when I'm dying and Fallout 8 has just come out, I can finally say like, oh, wow, like that is a portrait of America Mm because they're getting close. (laughs) (laughs) I want I want Dime Square at uh, adjacent posters to be put in a fallout vault where they have no twitter no exactly they would tear each other apart <laughs> it would be it would be so funny but like yeah no i yeah i mean the beauty of fallout is that it can be for the most part what it wants to be you know you can it it kind of emulates like a uh, final fantasy in a sense where there's sort of connective tissue between it all. But at the end of the day, each entry kind of stands on its own. And yeah, I mean, hopefully people will view fallout forward and in 76 in a more positive light because of this episode. So I have to thank you, Samantha for joining me on this odyssey tonight. I think it's we. It's been so long. I'm sorry for keeping you for. Oh no, please. Uh, five hours. <laughs> no, please. I mean, I feel like the only way to properly crack the code, as Sasha Bell once said on Drag Race season seven, you know, in order to crack the code about Fallout, the new Fallouts is that you have to really dig your teeth in. Yeah. And. Well- I'm glad we've been able to do that. And I'm we, so glad I've been on. Thank you again. This this was the joint sleigh. It really was. <laughs> and with that, I think right there, we will call the recording finished.